Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, you had to be there, the crappy quiz, and a slight tangent. Does that count? <laughs> Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Half past seven, OTBAM. Very welcome along to the show, Shane. Good morning to you. Good morning, how are things? Kathleen, what's happening? Good morning, guys. How are you? No tea. No what? tea. Very sad. Got my cup of tea this morning. Both well. forgot. Kathleen actually went to the effort of making up. I made a cup of tea and then I got chatting to Phil about the squad that's being announced today for the World Cup and asking me had I read Vera Powell's latest interview. And then I was like, oh, the time. I'm supposed to be in my chair getting set up and I forgot my tea. You're like, um, did you ever have a teacher in school where you'd go, like, you'd, we had one where you go in and you go, oh, sorry, no, tell us about that Galway game. Oh, yeah, distracted. Where, where that thing happened. Yeah. And 20 minutes later, he'd be like, ah, oh, damn it, got we me again. We used to have a great yeah. teacher for that double business on a Wednesday in Leaving Search, and there was only, like, nine of us in the class. You just ask her about anything that was in the news, and she'd just talk for the entire thing, and then it'd be, like, 15 minutes before the end of class, and she'd be like, ah. Oh. Mm. You need to pass your leaving, sir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then the Got exam comes around and you're like, yeah. oh, crap. That's Kathleen, how I feel about you, particularly at the minute in relation to uh, the women's national team. Any Anything around the office, uh. it's like, you know, uh, legitimately, because the squad has been named as well. But the tea, the tea is a weird start. The tea, I'm not going to lie, I'm, is a weird I'm sad start to as the well day, because I'm sorry I'm sitting in judgment, but... No, I'm sad as well because, I don't know, this whole morning, didn't sleep great last night, so just have been a bit rushed all morning and I've only had one cup of tea so far and normally at this stage I would have at least two maybe even three in me you're not a coffee drinker not a no a, ten flat whites thrown in the garage house eight to ten flat whites a day <laughs> that's that's <laughs> about eight or nine have too a, many a very ah, great man Jojo. coming in here Jojo's with my cup it. of tea thank you Jojo <laughs> <laughs> I'd be wearing shorts this morning Jojo but fair play that's he didn't see the shorts that's what? above and beyond the call of duty yeah, yeah. that is what we call Shane's, Shane was just saying there Jojo yeah, he was Mike. looking for a <laughs> <laughs> One sugar. <laughs> no. uh, tea is a no, weird that, start to the day, lads. I'm not going to lie. That's warmed my heart now. It's a better day. Tea is a weird start to the day. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were judging the fact that we hadn't got any Oh, any sorry. Drinks. Yeah, so did I. That oh. was the No, judgment. no, no. I'm, I'm absolutely seeing judgment. What's your start to the day? I have coffee. What, like Americano? Some version of a flat white. Whatever I can get out of the machine there. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Whatever comes Not a lot out. out of that machine, in fairness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, it's all good. I don't uh, know, I've never been a coffee drinker. I just... At all. Not really. And more so when I, since I've started this job a bit more, like there are some days where it gets to about 11 o'clock and I'm just like, I can't do this. Oh, I love a cappuccino after the show. I, I, I used to take a coffee before the show and I, I've weaned myself off it now. Have you? Why? I, I just, I just, I just, I take maybe a, a green tea or a peppermint tea pre-show. Wow. And then uh, get... To like chill yourself out because you're, you're worked up about stuff. I'm so stressed about things yeah. usually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then after the show, I, like, I go out. Off site and get myself a nice little. Oh right, right, come on. A really Obviously, nice one. Uh, a brain burn one. Of course, yeah, exactly. of course. Um, right. Yeah. So that's green tea pre-show. Now it's all revelations at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shane and I are just very measured, controlled people. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We, well, that's we're my, high the, on that's, life. That's, that's the root of my surprise here, Kathleen. You <laughs> try it. You and try you're it. drinking green tea. Yeah, yeah. Um, very good. Um, <laughs> half past seven. Do uh, get your comments coming into us, whatever it is that's. Um, uh, uh, got your interest this morning lots of uh, stuff going on there's been all the um, I was going to call it live stuff whatever you want to call it yourself stuff in relation to the golf during the week and I was kind of struck by how um, everybody is now trying to 
Um, I mean, you're expected to sit in front of the cameras and the microphones and rationalise the outrage that you've had for the previous two years and um, also try and salvage your career at some point because, like, otherwise the only possibility for the likes of Rory McIlroy, who, I mean, on some level, you've got to have an awful lot of sympathy for given that he was, as he said himself, the sacrificial lamb. Mm. Um, you've got to rationalise all that stuff and then, you know, make accommodations for the fact that that's going to be the root of your paycheck for the rest of your career um, and you know it's there to save golf so that's certainly one thing that's going on you have uh, the announcement of the women's national team squad later today uh, which will be hopefully a bit of an indicator as to what's going to happen in a couple of weeks time you have Rashid Ad- Adelecki tearing it up again <laughs> at the NCAAs um, overnight and then you have uh, also the other story this morning that we'll touch on is Galway Armagh the CCCC have decided that uh, they ain't going to Croke Park next weekend you need weekend. to come up with a better name then I know, I know, I know. I like Every it. time I say it, I'm like, see, 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 I really like it. Uh, oh, really? Like You're it. into it? See, see, see. If you can say it properly, then it just comes off. Comes yeah. off tongue but do you not always get to like the kind of second or third last C in your life? Yeah. Unless well, you're saying it How well. many have I done before? Do I need There's to? always a temptation just to do 10 Cs, but then, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, the crappy quiz committee comes like into it as well, you see. The who? We have the crappy quiz committee, which oh, yeah, adds an extra C or two. CQC. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's start there then. That's the they've decided that um, Park Sean will do just fine for the two lads on Sunday week, and it's not. It isn't a dead rubber in the group. Um, there are still things to be fought for. There is a weird um, a potential outcome, I mean, unlikely outcome, where Westmead beat Tyrone, Armagh beat Galway, and then it's Tyrone that don't go through and Westmead to do, and then there's jockeying for positions between Galway and Armagh after that. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what's at stake in that. It's not really the absolute jeopardy. I think it seems reading between the lines that the CCCC would have wanted absolute jeopardy between the two as to who would go through and who wouldn't. Uh, and also the uh, recent attendances from both teams suggest that they won't get... So it's 10,000, I think, is it, in, in Carrick and Shannon? Mm. 9,000, yeah. 9,000, yeah, OK. So uh, there was 4,000 in Mullingar. I think there might have been about 10,000 at Armagh's last game. Um, last Armagh fans so. do travel well, to be fair. Yeah. So they're one of the counties that will have a lot of people. So they're kind of a bit worried that there won't be a huge you know, dwarf, that attendance would be dwarfed at Crow Park, and so they'll just leave it off. i not entirely against the idea of them having asked for the game to be played at Croke Park if Dublin can have their home games um, in Croke Park then I think everybody else should be entitled to at least put their hand up and go hey wouldn't mind a bit of that pipe better practice yeah. in, on the big pitch maybe that's what they're looking, both looking for Armagh and Galway that's expect. exactly what it is yeah to get used to it not that they're not used to it they both played each other in the, the quarter final there last year but um, yeah I can see the argument for both Like I like the fact the little provincial grounds getting their their day in the sun Like this will probably be the biggest game at Park Sean with Jermada all summer. Mm. Like, it, as you say, it does have jeopardy. And I think people probably don't realise the jeopardy involved. Like, for Armagh uh, and Tyrone, in their respective games, finishing second or third, well, obviously finishing second in your group gets get you home advantage for the for the next round, the preliminary quarterfinal. But if you finish third, there's a, there's a scenario there where you could play a way to Kerry in a preliminary quarterfinal, because yeah. Kerry will probably finish second. Um, otherwise... You know, you've got a relatively handier game. So for Armagh, there's a lot at stake. For Tyrone, there's a lot at stake in their game against Westmeath. Um, so I know there's no jeopardy as such. It's just not that cliff edge, make or break, right? No, but none, like of the, none of the groups really are massively cliff edge. No, but do you know what I mean? In terms of the rationale about sending it to Croke Park. Yeah, yeah. So even I, do like, I don't even get the rationale from the side. Like, even if it was a massive jeopardy game, do you want that swamped by Croke Park? If, say, like 15,000 people turn up, 
like there's not going to be any atmosphere. Everyone's going to be spread out. Mm. You know, you have that in a smaller. Like there are plenty of other stadiums that they could have asked to go to rather than Shamadir, and like they would have been grand. They would have had like a great atmosphere. They would have had their extra fans there if there was like a couple of hundred seats free. It wouldn't have mattered even if they got a twenty thousand seater stadium. I don't know why they would want to go into Croke Park and it'd be empty, hollow. And, you know, and a bigger pay, even as well, if it's a match with Jeopardy, like I always think about Wash, say the women's team said when people were like, oh, move to the Viva, don't play your qualifiers in the Tala. And they were like, well, if it was a bigger pitch, we know what we're playing in Tala. Like, Crow Park is a massive pitch. You're putting a little bit on the line there in terms of, well, is our fitness up to scratch? Are, are they going to be fitter? Are we going to be able to run for longer? Is it going to suit our game better? Is it going to suit their game better? You're just leaving... I don't know, a lot of things up in the air. And I I just thought it was a really weird venue to choose. I totally understand if they wanted to go somewhere else. Even if they wanted to go to one of the big provincial grounds, it would have made more sense it's just to the me. geography, isn't it? Like, I know there's other grounds being used that weekend. Bethley Park's being used. There's a lot of grounds in between kind of in use. Um, like, Armagh fans were left a bit disappointed after the Ultra Final because a lot of them missed out on tickets for that Derry game. So I can see why they want to push for, for this because fans have been disappointed. Um I think tickets are only being sold online for the Armagh Galway game, um, as well, opposed there to will the clubs. Be, there will be definitely a lot of fans. I, I think the yeah, rationale be from the Galway and the Armagh side is exactly like you said, that they want to get the experience of playing at Crow Park. Yeah. So I think that's one thing. But the CCCC don't give two hoots about that. They're more saying, well, you can't come here for Kathleen's point, which is that it's just not going to be enough in it. And then you do end up with that sort of odd situation of the ground that they're actually playing in not being enough. Uh, PWGC on YouTube, good morning to you, said that could have played the Armagh Galway game in Cavan as its bigger capacity. You said there's a game already on there. Uh, I'll double check 25,000 to Breffney Park, so that would make a bit of sense, but it doesn't take the box for them in terms of the actual rationale as to why they want to go and get some experience playing at Croker. Yeah, Tyrone West, Tyrone, Tyrone West Mead is that day at Breffney Park at 4 o'clock, and they obviously have to play the two games at the same time because they're in the same group. Oh, I'm with you. So obviously, Breffney Park can't be the venue. Um, but maybe there's another venue. I don't know, is Brewster Park and then a skill and an option? It's probably it's small as well. So. It's, it just doesn't take the box for the rationale no, as to why they no, want to exactly. change it anyway. So. Yeah, they need some. I big. think. Yeah. Um, no, I can see. I can see both sides of the argument. I, I, I just. It is rare the two counties would agree and be asking for the same thing. So sometimes you'd be like, well, would the GA not just give them what they want? But then also I can see how the atmosphere in in, in Carrick and Shannon is going to be brilliant. And I think when our yeah, man, it'll be happening. It'll be happening, and the Armand Galway fans to get tickets will be probably happy out that it's on in Carrick and Shannon on the day. I was at uh, Cusick Park last week for um, last Saturday evening for um, Mullingar oh, for yes. Westmeath and uh, Galway. Yeah, uh, it was great old game. Good atmosphere, really enjoyable. I, ma- I make this point a lot, but even if you're not into sport, and I appreciate that's probably not not a I'm preaching to the choir here in terms of our <laughs> audience. Um, it's just a brilliant thing to do yeah, like, and yeah. it was a really good game for a long period of time unfortunately they felt shite at the end and well, that the was off didn't sort help. to be expected yeah it didn't help but the wind was going that way anyway and Galway had, had a hat full of goal chances in the first half um, but it's definitely I would have always said that this Westmead, t- Westmead team on the day when they're putting it together will we can battle it out with the big boys it's funny you could do that for sort of 50-60 minutes Westmead is one of those teams that uh, you looked at the groups at the start and you saw Westmead and Sligo in the other group no offence to both of your counties but probably oh, seen, yeah, seen as the teams one. that would bend over and, and lose three games reasonably comfortably and it, and that was my fear for these groups but it just hasn't materialised that way like Sligo got the draw the first day against Kildare and got fairly hammered by Ross I know Common. yeah of course <laughs> Ross Common are flying I feel like, um, mildly offended that you're putting Westmead in the same category as Sligo I'm sorry Kathleen but that's you know, that's, where, that's where I'm at well yeah. who'd win between Westmead and Sligo at the moment ah come on now <laughs> come on now 
we're not having it. We're not. We're not descending into this. Like Drew Kildare, remember that now, yeah. and c- could have won it at the end. Um, good team there, but uh, West, I do take your point. Give us a few years. Give us a few. Yeah, years. exactly. We're coming. Um, so look at that's that's there and it's bubbling away in the background there's been a few uh, comments coming in as well uh, Conor McCone wondering what the pitch surface in Leitrim is like with the recent dry weather that's the big concern at the moment uh, for all managers and Spectre Core, good morning to you he's wondering if you're going to Carrick tomorrow and all suggesting uh, suggesting the Gaelic grounds in Limerick there are other options but again I just don't I was wondering was the Gaelic grounds in Limerick a bit of a funny suggestion after the Munster hurling final stuff oh yeah, yeah. the uh, Carrick that's reference to the well, that's the uh, the All Ireland Minor Football quarter final. Mayo Mayo and I won't be there. I'll be watching. He's a he's a Johnny Come Lately Spectre Corps. What's going on there? No, that's no, what no. you're hearing. Uh, like every, there's people slagging me in the comments yesterday saying how much are Mayo going to beat Monaghan by in the All Ireland Minor quarter final because Mayo are after winning Connacht. Um, Monaghan are coming. Don't you worry. They lost the Derry. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. They lost the in the Ulster final on penalties. I'll uh, be a good game. So no. Yeah. Go on. Six weeks enough of the man and minors and enough of Westmead <laughs> football and Sligo football. Six weeks to the uh, kick off of the World Cup. Um, friendlies against Zambia, obviously in a couple of weeks. France to come as well. Both um, sold out. Both sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the game in Australia as well. So uh, with all of that in mind, uh, Vera Pau, I'd read one source saying thirty players to be named today. It's this extended training squad. Catherine, you're saying it might be maybe a couple short of that. And then ultimately it all get cut to twenty three, which seems like a really Small, so travel, low. I don't you? understand FIFA the fact that they wouldn't let them. Like nearly every single manager from competing federations applied and said, "Can we have twenty six? Because I mean, like technically, it's twenty outfield players because you're going to bring your three goalies yeah. with you as well. So and they'll bring three. They're allowed to bring three players as kind of. I mean, which must be the absolute purgatory of all trips to go on if you're one of those three players. Well, especially because extras. yeah, because once the first game's played, that's you gone. You know, you're definitely not getting called into it. So it's also the thing of like, do you keep the three players there? Do you keep them involved in the squad do you send them home like there was some talk that England were going to not keep their three players with the squad because they were just like additional add-ons and I was like oh. I think from an Irish perspective you have to keep the three of them yeah like it's it's an experience it could be a once in a lifetime hopefully it's not but like for these players mm. certainly it could be a once in a lifetime opportunity um, it, it just to soak up the atmosphere of a World Cup I think if you're on those three you'll be gutted to not have made the playing squad but you still want to be around the yeah, be, team you, well, are you allowed to are you technically allowed to be involved in training if you're one of the three I think so, so you can be in and around the squad you just can't extra play. long studs on and get stuck in that's what I do uh, yeah oh. no that would be fairly harsh yeah it's so, actually exactly a month today to when I fly out so the squad is um, the squad that's been named today. It's a kind of a weird one because the US players aren't featuring. So it's not a case of if you're not in today, then your chance is gone. Yeah. So nobody panic when Denise O'Sullivan's name isn't on the list. So it doesn't mean that it, of let's say that do you say there's 29 players being named today or 28? I thought. So let's say there's let's say in that instance, then there's th- there's five who won't make the 23. But there's actually eight that mm. won't make the 23. So, um, I mean, everything is still up for grabs. What are you watching out for? Well, well, so I've heard through the grapevine and it's also been reported elsewhere that there's a few more players from the league here that have been included. So, um, McAvoy, a lot of people were complaining about Tara Hanlon as well. A lot of people were surprised that Jesse Stapleton's name hasn't been more around the squad. Which is funny, I actually tweeted that she wasn't involved in the squad from what I heard and she liked it, so I assume that probably means that she's oh, okay. not in there. Uh, but she's definitely one to watch for the future. Like, I don't think this is going to be by any means a make or break chance for her. One of the big talking points is Leanne Kiernan. Obviously, she's been injured for the majority of the season. This is supposed to be her 
breakout season at Liverpool, you know, top scorer in the championship last year. Liverpool came in this year, made like a really good start and she got injured really, really early on. I was supposed to be back one month, it was supposed to be one month and then it was two months and it was three months and she just kept getting put back and back and then eventually only came back the second last weekend uh, before the end of the WSL. So I was having a debate with Emma Carroll and Phil Egan yesterday about whether she should be included or not. I would include her because I think she's one of our few attacking options. I know we saw with the US game that Vera kind of did change up her systems a little bit more and we did actually attack a bit more than we normally would. But she's like an out-and-out striker, which we do not have in this team at all. And I think even just for the training squad purposes, she should be in there. But Vera hasn't ever really favoured her. So I'll be very interested to see if she makes it in today. Um, Savannah McCarthy is another one who I'll be interested to see. I interviewed her probably like two months ago now, and she was just on her way back from an ACL injury. She was a regular starter when we were in our early qualifying stages before she got that ACL injury. And she said to me at the time that she'd been on the phone nearly every week to Vera about her progress. You know, she's a player that Vera favours. So she's just been back on the pitch the last month or so. So has she shown enough that she'll be able to get a spot in the training squad? Uh, Clara Reardon, who plays at Celtic, won the Scottish League. She's been on the fringes as well a lot of the time, but is also, again, one of those players that is very good at attacking and could bring that element for us. So, yeah, there's a lot of ifs and buts. And there's also, we've had so many injuries, you know, even players like Nifahi. She's been injured. She hasn't had all that much game time. Lily Ag hasn't had all that much game time. Um, she writes a really good column actually for the Athletic, which I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we have four players who are without clubs. So Rusha, Lil John, and the three Megans. Although Rusha did say she had been chatting to Vera, and the reason she hasn't been playing the last while is because she wanted to make sure she didn't get injured ahead of the World Cup, and that was something Vera supported. So I assume she's mm-hmm. safe enough in there. This is when um, this is when Vera Pau earns her wages. Like, what is she mm. on? One hundred and fifty grand, and I couldn't imagine the difficulty of having these conversations with, with players, having to sit them down, and the way in which you tell them is also so important as well. You're not going to the World Cup, hand her on the shoulder. I presume she tells them all in person. Most well, maybe the ones who are not in the camp. Obviously, she can't tell in person. Well, see, it depends because um, we like we're running the send off event. On June twenty eighth, mm. very exciting. It's going to be a great evening. But um, the ne- that's the next morning the squad's announced, <laughs> and from what I know, Vera's ringing the entire squad the next morning. Right. So like, there's going to be people doing all this like World Cup build up, and you know, certain players say even the last couple of weeks while the league in England was still ongoing. It's been all the home base players that have been doing World Cup events. So like Anya Gorman, Abby Larkin, and like they're not certainties for the squad by any shape or form mm. so every, you, you keep going up to them and being like how are you feeling do you think you're getting in mm. Amber Barrett is another one we don't know if going to get in I mean oh they can't leave Amber Barrett sure. well like she hasn't really played and Potsdam were um, relegated like yeah. she got that shoulder injury in January and she's talked about how much she's struggled since then when she has played she's been playing at like right back she hasn't been playing yeah. you, you can't throw in the squad just for romantic reasons as in yeah. you know, scored the oh, famous goal I mean I don't know about romance but I, she would have played a lot defensively anyway and then with Ireland would have come in and played up front and like maybe the fact that she has been injured and hasn't been associated with the stink maybe that's like the thing that sort of but I mean 
are we not going to revolt as a nation if Amber Barrett I mean I'm all about the romance I'm like that'd be the story wouldn't it the, if, she, if she doesn't make the squad that's the it's headline it's so tough though because like it's 20 players if you take away the goalies but, and but, but apart from anything right in a crunch game where the chips are down I will get you a goal you put me in there that for me is like she's on the squad she is in the squad we'll, we'll, let's fit around that but she's in the squad yeah. Would, you, would she be in your hypothetical squad, Kathleen? She is on the very edge of my hypothetical squad. That's what I asked, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, right now, I don't know if she would be. Right. Which is, uh, I'm going to have everyone coming after me for saying that. Uh, and, like, I love Amber. She's great. Like, such a lovely woman and stuff. And, like, great player. And absolutely, she got us to that World Cup. But I just... She's Kathleen's cutthroat. No, no I, I, I no, think but she hasn't. Like just the way she's played, and the fact that she hasn't got all that much time, and I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say right that it, we can dis- let's discount the way she's played for the club. That there, we've a long history, and to be fair, most it's not unique to Ireland of players who are, let's say, like average enough in their club days and can come in and do an unbelievable job for the country there's plenty of examples not just in Ireland of a player's ability to do that and she's got this stuff in the bank of um, this is the most recent thing and she like the adulation she gets afterwards her ability to do it like proven ability to do it mm. in a crunch game I just think mm-hmm. I don't know I think in terms of looking at a World Cup there is likely scenarios in the group stages where we're going to be behind uh, probably, you know, we're obviously pretty compact defensively, so we may not be that far behind. It's highly possible that we'll be a goal down some of the bigger teams, 10, 15 minutes to go. Who are you going to call? Her, her ability to play in numerous Let's positions. Should... Barrett there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, seriously, like, I mean, that's, that's who Vera Powell's going to turn like, to. I don't know what I call... I know she did it in Scotland, and again, I'm not taking that away, but I don't know what I call on her in a crunch match. I don't... I, I don't know if like that the Scotland w- game for example but I don't know if that but when I, like I wouldn't have thought going into that game that she would be the person to pull mm. the as well, the cat out of the bag which doesn't make any sense the rabbit out of the hat <laughs> um, and I just I, I I do think I agree we talk about this so much on Koi Gig like I do think playing and playing regularly especially in the women's game is really important even if you're not playing at like a super high level if it's championship if it's like lower down in the Frauen Bundesliga I yeah hey I would absolutely love it I will come on here you can get me to do anything you want if I'm wrong and Amber Barrett makes the score up, clip it up clip it yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you need to say now what you want me to do but uh, <laughs> I'm not coming back retrospectively I think she, I, if she does a wonder for us in Australia I will bow to the altar of Amber Barrett and I will Never leave it. I'm just not sure at the moment. Is there a Donegal Sligo rivalry? Is that is this what is this what we're getting to? I think Kathleen is sort of would associate herself heavily with Donegal. If yeah. I'm not mistaken, would you? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Like we would spend quite a few weeks up there during the summers and stuff. And yeah, Donegal has a very very fair close place There's in no, my heart. No bias in that regard. No. Um, I just think we also I have do... nothing to be rivals about. Really, yeah. I think Vera our Pau... mountains are prettier than your mountains. The rallying, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think uh, Vera Pau will have sat down and probably already picked her likely 23 plus 3, you would have to assume. Mm. Maybe Amber Barrett is part of that plus 3 in the basis of what you're saying, Kathleen. I do think that managers will have a tendency to go back to what they know, for sure, in terms of proven ability and in terms of what they know in terms of um, 
you know, I should, she'll probably have a fair idea, injuries notwithstanding, of who her 11 are. Um, and, you know, she will be thinking about the points that we're just making about we might be 1-0 down, 2-0 down, 10, 15 minutes to go. What do I do at that point? Um, and I do think that that will be... You never know of here either. She could parachute someone in today and we'd just be like, who is this person? Like, yeah. she's done it at every international break so far. Mm. Um, and then the other thing, obviously, announced during the week um, is that a, the money so they're going to get 28 grand a pop at the very least for turning up which is a huge I read somewhere it was like a 300% increase on the base level from the previous World mm-hmm. Cup and the FAR getting, getting a million and a half so uh, probably still with a bit of work to do but yeah. forward steps well, like the average wage in the women's game is £14,000 so like for for uh, is that based off like because I mean WNL players are going to be a million miles off WSL. oh yeah well that's that's like a basis across I think England and Ireland across yeah. all the leagues that's the anyone who's paid whether it's pro or semi-pro it's a basic £14,000 wage um, so like there's several players in our squad who like that would be a pretty sweet little landfall to get and like they deserve it that's the thing like when I saw these figures come out I was actually genuinely shocked you know if you're a winner you get $270,000 each and I was like ah they're actually investing in the women's game I mean I'm not giving Infantino absolutely any credit for this because I know it's not coming from him Um, but yeah it was just nice to see that they're taking things a little bit more seriously this time around at long last even if all the broadcasters in Europe apart from Ireland who has their broadcasting sorted out Right. Who's broadcasting in Ireland? Uh, or T. Okay. Um, our good friend Shifty Lad, uh, good morning to you Shifty, says, imagine any of those girls that was in Scotland and qualified that cheered with family, friends and colleagues getting dropped for the World Cup, they'd be sick for life. Hopefully that uh, they can all go. I mean, I don't think there's one for everybody in the audience, Shifty, mm. and that's the issue here. And it, it does have a feel of that. You know the team who get promoted right from the championship into third yeah. league, whatever it might be, and you're looking at them going, oh, I mean, don't celebrate too hard because you ain't going to be around next, yeah. next season. There is a little bit of that. I've like, been but, I mean, saying that since the start as well, though. Like when they were all celebrating, we were like, God, there's so many of the squad that might not be there. Yeah. Mm. Just more than we probably imagined. I mean, the Amber Bart one, you've really sideswiped me with that, Catherine, I have to say. That is, um, I'm, I've, I've been assuming because there will be, like, there needs, there needs to be a statue to Amber Bart somewhere or somewhere oh, definitely. what she did. So, on that basis alone... Mm. Oh, like, what she's done can never be written out of history. Like, she brought us to our first ever World Cup. Oh, that abs- I remember we had this conversation on air a couple of months back when we were talking about what statues would you have, and I said I would have an Amber Bart statue with a, a big toe involved somewhere. But, like, I, I'm not taking away from her from that at all. I just... And, like, this is a conversation I've been having with a lot of people who, ha- like, kind of work around the women's national team and also who follow it quite closely. You were saying that, like, they don't fully know if she is going to make it or not. Like, I, I do agree with you. I think Vera is the sort that will stick to what she knows. Um, but if it was me, I would be... This would be like Alan McLaughlin not making the 94 squad or McAteer not making the 02 squad. This will be fairly significant. Yeah, like I think the, that would be a big... The, fam- the most famous goal in Irish history. Either we'll be replaying Kathleen's clip there, Shane, or we'll be... It'll <laughs> never be mentioned again. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, as well, like, I, there's something good about that as well, in the sense that if people do get outraged that Vera Powell, or that Vera Powell doesn't pick Amber Barrett into the squad... I'm like, that's good. That means we're in the mainstream now. That means that like people know who Amber Barrett is, knows what the goal was. They're like, why isn't she there? Mm, like, I yeah. don't mind if we're having those conversations. We have sort of, have we? Uh, maybe we haven't. Like, 
No? I don't think so. I think this will, the World Cup this year will go a good way towards that. But I think a lot of people's knowledge is probably off like four or five players. And if you were to ask for a tactical breakdown in the way that a lot of people who follow the Irish team or the Irish men's team, um, they wouldn't have a half a clue what to mm. say to you. I've had this conversation in far too many pubs with men who follow the men's team and I'd be like, oh, do you watch the women's team? And they're like, why would I do that? And I'm like, mm. well, you literally travel to Gibraltar to watch the men probably lose. <laughs> why not watch a team that's actually going to a major tournament for mm. once? The other thing that we need to mention is, and I mentioned at the top of the show, Rashid Adeleke has been at it again in the best possible sense last night at the NCAA's um, 49.86 in the semi-final of the 400 metres to win it uh, to qualify for the final, which would be run off Saturday night their time, Sunday morning our time, and uh, she ran that time and there were only two sub-50s. I want to give a bit of context here because I think that there can be an element of glazing over when Irish, an Irish audience hears about yeah. the NCAAs. We're not as plugged into it as like you would be from an American audience point of view. She's unbelievable, really, is the short story here. And she continues to be unbelievable and she continues to set records. She was pulling up at 49.86. There was only two sub-50s in the uh, semi-finals combined. Uh, she's still so young in her 400 career. I don't know, is she not run 15 or 20 of these races? And to be clocking the times that she is is incredible. Um and as I said, pulling up, she was second quickest then overall. Uh, Britton Wilson of the US set a, a meet record in the other semi-final, 49-36. Now, she was flat out um, all the way through, and uh, she will be the form runner. And I think that it will be seen as been between the two of them uh, come the final. Uh, Wilson's been battling injury on and off over the course of the season. So there's a possibility that uh, the ball is in the court of Rashid Adeleke, but... Um, She's incredible. She's absolutely incredible. Uh, and she was part of the 4x100 as well that set a new NCAA record earlier as well. So, um, absolutely flying it. Visited the track in uh, in Austin, Texas, where she uh, trains college-wise uh, a couple of years ago. And I think the facilities are ridiculously good. I can see why the NCAA, right. like there's money that's pumped into it. Uh, it's just amazing facilities. And I didn't even see the indoor facilities and the, the gym and stuff that would be used. Um, the best thing you could say about Rashid Adelecki is that Often on a Monday, we don't get her into the performance rankings. The odd week we will, but generally speaking, she's the one that misses out after doing something amazing at the weekend. Mm. We're like, we just don't have room. But uh, it's kind of like the Manchester City in the Champions League final thing. It's like so dominant that it's almost like mm. not a story. So like we haven't built up to the Champions League final much this week at all because we're like, ah, oh, it's Man City. It's boring. They're going to win the treble. Okay, all the money. Rashida's dominance has just has almost like led to her just being. Not ignored by Irish media, but like we've come to expect her winning. Well, we that. don't really get the NCAA's. That's the no, thing, of course. the enormity of them, and that's, that's yeah. part of the rationale for it. But needless to say, like setting records at that level, winning like, at that level, qualifying easily for finals at that level, amazing. Third fastest woman, as Dara points out here, um, a, over four hundred in the world this year. Like what was Dervla Rock's quote about her when she was on recently? She says that she's going to be world class she's the greatest, greatest sports person yeah, ever Irish she, wow. she's going to be Ireland's greatest sports person ever she said mm. and I was like what because like she said she's, she's in with a shout of a medal at the Olympics imagine an Irish sprinter being in with a shout of a medal yeah. like it's, it's just unheard of yeah. Yeah, so she's very proud of her and she's continuing to do the good stuff and we'll keep an eye on her over the weekend as well she she will feature in the performance rankings on Monday morning will. are we saying <laughs> that we guarantee are we, a let's throw it in there yeah, yeah. we'll promise it now um, right, there are loads of comments coming in. We'll reverse back into those, I think, at some point a little bit later on. Um, 
I want to uh, remind you that we're here with uh, Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. And I want to let you know what's coming up between now and 10 for you this morning. Graham Hunter standing by. We're going to talk all things Champions League. We'll touch a little bit on West Ham as well. His good friend David Moyes getting over the line during the week. So we'll get Graham's thoughts on that. Jenny Claffey is going to talk to us about the final lineup for the uh, French Open. A bit of a surprise final lineup, it has to be said. We'll get Jenny's thoughts on that. She'll be with us in the studio 25 past 8 this morning. Ashling Maher is the Dublin Camogie captain. They kick off their. Um, uh, group games in the championship uh, tomorrow against Tipperary and um, she's basically becoming a friend of the show now Ashling, and she'll be with us um, a little bit later on Sports News at 9 David Sharkey is a name that um, maybe many won't be familiar with but he's the person that's behind the Everest story do you remember that from the La Rochelle win a couple of weeks back he was the one who themed that out with Ronan Agara and has been theming it out with him uh, for the last few years in La Rochelle and beyond as well so he's a uh, an interesting person that we've been wanting to speak to for a couple of years now and we'll chat to him at 10 past 9 this morning and then Cameron's been in conversation with David Goff and that is coming your way from half past 9 so OTB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now Champions League final weekend. Graham Hunter, good morning to you. Morning, how are you? Great, and thanks a million for jumping on. We're um, we're excited to talk about it. We were having a bit of a debate on the show yesterday as to whether people generally were excited about the fact that it's the Champions League final. It's Manchester City against Inter Milan in Istanbul tomorrow night. And we get a lot of reaction from pe- people on social. And I would summarise it by saying people are a little bit meh. But did they say why? I can't understand it. I think the rationale would be that I think a lot of people who would sit in the fence wouldn't be uh, particularly into Manchester City winning it. And then I know Inter have won it four times, but maybe more recently they're not seen as one of the powerhouses of Europe. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to come on and, and try and persuade those. You know, you've led me into a situation where you know how I'm going to react um, if the if the Champions League final was between... Um, Partick Thistle and, and Clare I'd still be head over heels excited mm. about it it's it's the pinnacle of European football and I'm addicted to it and I have been since I was a kid um, I'm far more attracted by the idea about whether um, I don't want to portray Inter as as the, the villains in, in a footballing sense in any way but they're a, a, a hard working team that understands its own limitations They have they certainly have some standout footballers but I've watched a lot of their their play this season, and it's um, it's squeezing space, it's wing backs, and I realise as I'm saying all this, I'm maybe not selling it to those of you who are a bit mad about the final, but that's the fact about how Inzaghi's team plays. They if if they're they're bullies in the best sense of it. If they find they have a weaker team in front of them, then you can have fun watching them because there there are there's a cluster of skillful players which. Would include um, Barella, Chalanoglu, um, Lautaro Martinez is on very, very good form at the moment, um, and I think that there's no mistaking how they're going to play against City. They're going to try and close the spaces. They're going to try and understand that if the, the, the City system might be complex to to, to train to, to design. But it's relatively easy to understand what you can do to stop the system functioning, which is that if you can close the spaces in which particularly Ilkay Gundogan and Bernie Silva, as I learned, the, the, the team call him, um, we were at training. It was, it was a fantastic privilege, I think. Ever t- when you can watch any top football team train throughout a full session, 
I find it a huge privilege because you learn a lot. And one of the things I learned is that Bernardo Silva is Bernie to his teammates, which just didn't sound right at all. But if you can close the spaces in which the Turk and Silva and De Bruyne like to function, then the quality of ball that either Grealish gets in terms of being one-on-one against his rival or Haaland getting space to run into, the quality of ball delivered to him changes. And, and that's what Inter are going to try to do, definitely. And I'm not saying that they... If given a chance, they can't play. They'll certainly be strongest set plays. They'll be they'll be keen to shoot from distance. They definitely have heightened power across man for man. Not every single matchup, but across the two teams, they have a heightened power um, bias in Inter's favour. And for me, I'm going to be fascinated as to as to how Manchester City, Harry Houdini themselves, out of the the press and the asphyxiation that Inter are mm. going to try and put on them. And and uh, those those who aren't excited about it find fair. Um, but we're looking at history. We're looking at, you know, the potential for a treble. No coach has ever done um, two trebles. Um, no coach thereby, you know, it's it's de, de facto that no coach has done a treble at two different clubs. Guardiola and Chikibirstein would be responsible for two trebles if they achieve it um, on Saturday night. And for my taste as well, uh, Manchester City's football is absolutely, it's its stunning. It's, it's beautiful when it functions. It's its highly complex and it's hugely risky and it's really, really enjoyable. Mm. I think you've sort of cut to the nub of the issue there in terms of also, and I'm, I'm in the realms of supposition now, but I'm probably leaning my own biases into it as well, about the predicted outcome of the game and a lot of people feeling that it will be a Man City City's uh, favour. But you lean in on something there, Graham, that we might tease out a little bit more about that Inzaghi style of play, that sort of compact three-five-two. you know, um, there might have been, as you called out yourself, a little bit of a pejorative nature to some of the comments you make about his uh, his lineup and how they're pretty solid all over the pitch without the star names maybe of, a, of the likes of a Manchester City but uh, there's been some fairly average Premier League teams that have got some success out of uh, City in the season just gone with sort of sitting a little bit deeper is that how you expect this game to certainly start out? I, not, I don't expect them to sit deep um, as such I, I do think having watched Inter a lot that what they do is they, they try to make sure that there's no spaces that the, the gaps that the three key footballers operate in are are closed so and they're also bullies they're a, they're a very physical side um i think the the, the pits um of italian football was shown by roma and Mourinho, and it's not going to be quite like that i thought they were and i knew that was coming i'd watched roma this season and i think that Mourinho, you know who's just the lowest of the low in terms of what you want in sport, as far as I'm concerned, um, knew that he was he had to try and maximise the anything to, to try and win, and it was a really ugly spectacle. And Sevilla contributed without question; they contributed, and Inter aren't going to be like that. But I'm I'm coming to the the point um, that Shane they they will bully. They will it will be win at any cost uh, uh, because that's built into the Italian um, footballing nature. And therefore, I think that if you're not an Interista, it'll be very easy watching it to, to, to put the black hat on them and think they're the baddies of the thing because they won't, they won't need to or want to entertain. They have the capacity to, 
They definitely... Anybody who watched the way in which Inter ripped Milan in the first half hour of the first leg of the semi-final, they were on top of them. That's my point. So if they sniff that they've got... Let's say City about just have an outright bad night. Let's say City are are not as prime as they need to be going out there. For example, in 2009, when Pep won his first treble, the third part of it was in Roma, um, in the Olympic Stadium, and it was against Manchester United. And it, it's now pretty well known that Pep decided that an inspirational tool at the end of a long season where they'd won the title and they'd only, well, they did a, an interesting final in, in the cup against Atletico by going 1 0 down and having it worked very hard to get back into it, but ultimately winning 4 1. He, he gave the players in the dressing room a video composed by a local television technician of the highs and lows of their season so far with images of their family and friends and kids um, in it to the, to the theme tune of Gladiator. And the players testify, and, and you know, we made a film about all of this. So we've spoken to them directly, but some of them were in tears. Some of them went out with wobbly knees. And they walk out to, um, who's the beautiful Italian singer, the blind uh, tenor, Andrea Bocelli, um, singing um, as, the, as, the, as part of the opening ceremony prior to the kickoff. They're lined up. And and that if those who weren't already in tears, the the idea of listening to this beautiful voice soaring around the Olympic Stadium in Rome absolutely set the rest of them off. And they admit that for the first 10, 12 minutes that they were in pieces and they were they're just jelly. And so I spoke to I interviewed Pep Guardiola about a week a week ago today, probably I guess, and I asked him you know if you got anything and you'll avoid doing that again, but get anything up your sleeve. And he was like, no, we. The ultimate thing that we'll try to do is is treat this as, as a simple Premier League match. The lowest key pr- uh, preparation, not building up at all. He said, I've learned that it's it's not useful to overexcite my players. Now, if that fails, if, they, if for some reason City go, which I, I don't expect, go out there and and they're not on, on point, in terms of the capacity to bully them and to play, in, in terms of get on top of them and play and attack and, and be ferocious. It'll surprise me a little bit if Inzaghi starts that way like he did against Milan because he understood certain things. Uh, Rafa Leao was out, Milan hadn't been playing particularly well. They had really hard battles against Napoli and Inter Inzaghi obviously decided if we get right at them, if we land a couple of blows on the jaw early on, they may crumble, and and he was right. It was just a total mismatch for 45, 50 minutes at least, and the tie was effectively won then. If they go out like that against City, if they sniff anything from City, then Inter can play good football. It's just that they know they're not as good a side as City. They've, I've watched them across six or seven matches this season where they, they have felt that they might be outmatched. And if you remember against uh, Benfica in the home leg, when it looked like it was, it, it was all over and completely wrapped up and into his favour, I think it ended today in 3-3 at home. So they, they've got the capacity to play in a ding-dong battle too if, the, if they themselves find that City are cutting them open and, and take a lead in to have the capacity to, to, to shed their sort of um, boxing gloves and, and go for a match. I think... That, that, that as long as we get goals from whichever side, and, and you both know that 
Inzaghi's side, since he took over at Inter, have played in eight finals and won seven of them. Mm. So, um, and and in the last three of those, they've gone they've gone a goal behind. So those who think that there's no chance of entertainment and that it'll be sterile on Saturday, I think, are, are working on a pretty partial information. Graham, uh, you mentioned you, you spoke to Pep Guardiola um, within the last week or so. Um, what's he like to sit down with? Both on air and off air, because he rubs he rubs people off the, the wrong way. Sometimes rubs people up the wrong way. Sometimes I speak to a lot of people who interview him on a weekly basis, or, or, or you know, twice, you know, in a month, and they will say that if you catch him when he's annoyed, that he'll maybe be sort of leaning into the question and pretending not to hear it, or he'll cough during a, a, your question, or and 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 I love the way that it's it's if you're. Catching him in the wrong day, it's a gladiatorial battle. I like his, I really enjoy watching his press conferences. And, and I treat him with, even though we, we've known each other now for a long time, I treat him with ultimate respect in terms of trying to um, be persuasive for him to open up and enjoy the interview if, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm, when I'm sitting down with him, whether it's in Zoom, whether I put a question in a press conference. And I take I take as as much care with him as probably I've ever done with anybody when I'm interviewing because you first of all I don't normally expect to to rile him up, but I want good answers. I want to understand more about him. I want to understand more about his team or his tactics. I genuinely, I'm not there for a headline. I want to understand more. I want there to be value in getting this. Listen, I I think he's a Mozart of you know football. I think he's right up there with. With anybody who's who's coached or, or designed systems in sport, and therefore, <laughs> while while he's doing so, while he's still you know working at club level, I want the most out of him. So, what I find is that it's undoubtedly the case that it's a benefit that there's that there's trust when I speak to him. So I think it's a little bit um, I'm anomalous in that, that there's no way we're boozing buddies, and there's no way he's going to give me a pass if I screw up and ask a stupid question. <laughs> Then I'm going to end up with mud on my face. Be, be sure about that. But he knows what I'm interested in. He knows that when I'm asking things, it's it's. Um, it, I'm, I won't be asking polemic. I'll be I'll be wanting to un, him to explain better. So usually he tries. And I found last week he he was. For example, I said to him, you know, with, with the things that have happened to you in the Champions League, have you ever grown to hate the competition? He just laughed. And he went, look. I've had experiences which were extremely painful and which last with me. I've had experiences which broke up projects. And, you know, I coached in, in Germany well and didn't win it there. Um, but he said, if I die this week, if I die tomorrow, I've I've played in a Champions League final for the club that I love and I've won it. I've coached two Champions League finals for the club that I love and I've won them. And and the one he went to really surprised me. He said, I got so close to getting into the final. And he mentioned Bayern Munich against Atletico Madrid, which if people don't remember, it was the final that Atleti got to the second time against um, Real Madrid, which was finals in Milan. And Bayern should have won, and Atleti clung on, and Bayern and Atleti missed penalties in the in the first leg, uh, in the second leg in, in Bavaria. And somehow... My memory tells me who was the keeper. Was it Courtois to hear? It must have been Courtois. Anyway, at any rate, um, Atleti cling on and somehow, uh, Oblak maybe, do it. And, and that was the final 
uh, the, the semi-final that Pep's mind went to immediately, and and he said we were so close to getting to the final that that time, and he, he, for him the answer was that this competition has given him personally much more than it's taken away from him. But I'll, I'll close I'll close this long rambling answer by telling you that in um, the open day on Tuesday, I guess it was. Which was partly in the academy indoor um, arena where, you, where they have a, a full size pitch, and it was part of and, and training was open, which is just magnificent. To be, I'll tell you something about training if you want to know in a minute. But Thierry Henry was up for CBS to to interview Pep, something that he's done before, and of course he played in that first treble winning side in two thousand and nine. Played when in Rome against United when Thierry Henry assesses himself to have been about. 60% fit, doesn't know how he got on the pitch. Um, and he was nervous. He was nervous about this interview. He was well prepared. I watched from a distance. Pep was animated, really enjoyed it. It was the only one-on-one that Pep was doing last Tuesday. And if Thierry Henry goes into an interview a little bit con- concerned about how does he get it right, what does he, what should he not ask, then you know that Pep's achieved some of the one of the things that um, he wants to, which is he wants interviewers to think hard about what they're asking, and he wants to make it look like it might be a daunting experience. Yeah. So um, interviewing Pep, for my taste, is fun because if we're you, you boys interview all the time across all sports, and you know the types of people you come across. You you come across a wide range of people. Some who enjoy speaking, some who enjoy messing about. And it's a test, and it should be a test for us, and it, it should sharpen our skills. And that's how I find him. Uh, I would interview him every single week if I was allowed to, if I was able to. Um, and then my then my strike rate for getting a good interview from him might well go down. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, Graham. Um, I have heard him joke about the you know the cliche about well he overthinks the uh, finals. I've heard him have a gag about that. Um, and I don't know if that was his way of sort of ripping the plaster off and saying, listen, I'm here for it, let's uh, let's discuss it. Or if actually it was like a real thing in his mind and he's it's it's going to be a factor for him this weekend. What are your did that come up in the conversation and what are your views on that? No, well my views are pungent as you might imagine. I think that, you know, probably even though I've heard a couple of words escape on off the ball AM, I won't use the word that, you know, I um that I'd like to, but it's it would rhyme with the uh, Bucking right, um, <laughs> it's just it's absolute nonsense. There was, there was, there was really one final where there was controversy over a positional strategy that he used, which was the the final against Chelsea, um, in the oddest of times. Um, you know, it was at the, it was, it was when there had been so many months without fans and so many months of, of um, pandemic, and and he chose not to use a pivoti. And and people harp on about that because it was taken as a theme before the match. And nobody that I have seen when, when that final gets talked about, nobody talks about the outright assault by Rudiger on Kevin De Bruyne um, after about an hour, which robbed Manchester City of their best player and didn't get Rudiger a red card, which it fully merited. Smashed De Bruyne's face up. I think he fractured a cheekbone. His nose was all over the place. Um, he was taken off, couldn't continue. It was a deliberate body check by by Rudiger. It was, you know, we're we're starting to get into slightly, and I mean, for the, you know, for you guys who who cover rugby so much, slightly better concussion protocols in football. It's, it's pathetic compared to the way that rugby players are properly treated. But nonetheless, there is this motion that 
in football that there's, there's an idea that oh, maybe the head's an important part of the human anatomy. Maybe we should protect it like better. And there was nothing done. And and that doesn't get talked about. Whereas some idea that nobody's analytically ever said that it was the, the lack of a pivoti that, that meant that Chelsea won instead of Manchester City. Nobody's ever said that, well, no, maybe Pep doesn't talk about it an awful lot, but I know that Guardiola feels that Tuchel's Chelsea was the single best team he's ever come across, whether he's been in charge of Barca B, Barca, Bayern Munich or Manchester City. Tuchel's Chelsea was the single best team to know what to do with the ball, to know what to do with their strategy once they pressed the ball and won it back of City. Pep Guardiola's idea was that... Um, in, in his time as a coach. Other teams have, have tackled his players, have intercepted a pass, have pressed and won the ball. But his his overbearing idea is that most of the time, because opposition teams do that relatively rarely against his teams, opposition teams then don't necessarily use their their possession they've won back cleverly. They'll, they'll press too hard. Uh, they'll, sorry, they'll push quickly when they're not ready to attack. They'll, they'll make a nervous pass or they'll make an, a pass full of exuberance and extra, extra, look, we've won the ball back. Look, oh, we just lost it again. And Tuchel's team didn't. Guardiola, not just in that final, perpetually against Tuchel's Chelsea, um, and, and increasingly in, in Germany when Tuchel was learning how to play against um, uh, Guardiola when they were Dortmund and Bayern Munich coaches respectively. That was the thing that Tuchel had as a secret weapon, that, that he coached his teams that not that wouldn't be automatic that they'd smash into attack if they won the ball off City. They would if the gaps were there, but if, they, if the gaps weren't there, they would retrench and hold the ball and start to build themselves. And that was the that was one of the absolute key things that won that final. And this idea that, that Pep tinkers or comes up with crazy ideas, in terms of generally that, that he's rethinking ideas, that he that his strategies become complicated, and that certain players. You know, chafe under the, the 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 burden of do this, don't do that, and I've and I've changed what I'm telling you, that, you know, from two years ago or from half a season ago because this is how I see it now. Those things do chafe the players because certain players get into comfort zones and think, well, if we're winning, do not change a winning habit. Pep, Pep is not of the idea that if it broke, don't fix it. He's perpetually trying to stay ahead. So some players chafe at that. But the idea that that he comes up with, you know, fanciful nonsense in, in big occasions. I think that's just a myth. Graham, before we leave you, give it to us in a word. City or Inter? City and entertaining. Don't miss it. OK, well, we'll settle for that. And I do look forward to uh, the Partick v. Clare final at some point down the track. <laughs> It'll happen. You know it will. <laughs> Enjoy it. Thanks, Graham. See you, fellas. Graham Hunter on the line there. Uh, there's news coming through from Shelburne, by the way, that the uh, suspected takeover from the uh, Turkish owners of Hull City has gone through. We'll give you more details on that in uh, just a little bit. Loads of comments coming in to us as well. It is uh, 29 minutes past eight. It's OTBAM and we're live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. So um, we're going to go, I think, to a clip of John Giles from... Uh, the show last night and uh, we're back after that we're talking tennis with Jenny Claffey last weekend uh, they edged out Manchester United in the end the scoreline was close did it feel like a close game? I thought they, I thought they outclassed United to be quite honest Nathan I think uh, as we know City got a, a penalty that was in my opinion outrageous uh, to put them in the game to make it 1-1 you know City, City the Jack Grealish handball sorry the Jack Grealish handball you weren't having it yes 
yeah, yeah. You know, that was uh, that put them back in the game when City were on top. City were playing really well. Uh, but they, they, City did well. They overcame that particular situation, Nathan, you know, and, and, and deserved to win it. What a com- very competitive. Yeah. Now, it is uh, half past eight. Leave your earpiece in, Adrian, I think is the, we're just uh, talking the, about key, snooker there. the keynote for You'd that. We got wandered into talking about snooker with Jenny Claffey. Good morning to you, Jenny. Good morning, guys. Clunkier than expected intro into this item. How are you keeping? Yeah, very well, thanks. You've given out to us here in the ads. That was why I had to take the earpiece out. I was getting the ear chewed off me for not <laughs> uh, for the tennis racket disappearing from the set. Yeah, dead I right, really. We'll have to get on to make the, the, uh, the producer. Uh, French Open is getting down to the crunch round, so that's what we're actually here to discuss. Yes. And uh, the uh, finalists have been decided. The second seed, Arena Sabalenka, dumped out last night. Long game, tight game, but does end uh, deserved? How did you feel in the end for Machova to make the final? I mean, it was a pretty disappointing wa- watch at the end of that match there yesterday for Sabalenka. You know, 5-2 yeah. up in the third set with a match point. Seemed to be totally mm-hmm. in control of the match. And then from there, just imploded totally. Yeah. It was really surprising... Um, having having the amazing season that she's had this year, having won the Australian Open, and you know, seem to have kind of battered those demons down from the past. But uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a shocking result. I mean, Mukova won twenty of the last twenty four points of the match, and it was yeah. just a complete and utter uh, disaster for yeah. Sabalenka. Funny how a player can be in such form and then get to match point and so dominant and then just capitulate. Like it's obviously psychological at that point. At that point, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I mean, at the actual match point itself, Mukova played a great point, a mm. good serve and hit a winner. And then from there, it just almost looked like the fight had gone from Sabalenka. Like her body language went a little bit more. You could see it in right language. I mean, her, she just had head dropped a little bit. And then what happens with Sabalenka is she has plan A and then if plan A doesn't work, yeah. she flies to play plan A++ and she starts over trying and she just made so many mistakes, which, you know, we would have seen in previous years and that's what kind of what took her a few years to get to this stage that she's at now in her career with so much success is that she, she would play and overtry and make so many mistakes because her game is so powerful um, but it's disappointing to see that creep in there yesterday Well even on the success so she's never made it to a Paris final she's obviously the Australian Open winner for early in the year so she's kind of been there and kind of done it yeah. but in the Paris sense obviously she's not been able to get over that hurdle when you when Jane asked you there was that uh, mental thing you said yes definitely and then you said but it was a really good point from Akova so where is the actual truth of that it, because I think that a lot of people will be looking on going is this becoming a thing for her now well sorry what I mean by the, the match point was like there was nothing that Sabalenka mm. could have done as such at that stage but thereafter it looked as okay. though she just imploded mentally yeah. um, and even by her response after the match she, was, she, she wasn't admitting it to mm. it but I think that we will hear in coming days that, that she will probably put it down to that that something changed in her, in her mindset what did that mean for her going forward because like, it's not you know the, it's not that the Australian Open was an outlier in the sense that like she has made semi-finals of other grand slam tournaments but it's not like either like she's got this long track record of winning in crunch games and that's a high profile moment where as you say maybe the moment itself was not the thing but the stuff that followed was the thing which is nearly even more of a concern mentally for her. Yeah and that's what's going to sting for her is going to be the fact that she wasn't able to turn it around mm-hmm. having still been you know 5-2 up had a match point 5-3 up serving for it that it was this the snowball then from thereafter like how do you manage that as a player after she's going to be obviously hugely bereft over the next few days and very disappointed um, but you're going to have to I mean that's where champions are made you're going to have to find the, the, that um, way to turn that around and fuel that now going forward like you said like she's never made to pass the third round in Roland Garros but this year she has shown some great yeah. form winning two tournaments She won, and, then, and she also won the Australian Open her maiden slam and I think people were expecting bigger things for her she was also playing yesterday for the number one ranking I think if Shivantek hadn't won or mm-hmm. there was some kind of yeah. formulation that she was playing for the number one in the world and maybe all these things are, are playing on her mind as well you hope you hope not in those kind of moments but yeah it was it was a shocking 
end to the match. Yeah. And what about for McCova then? She's been around for a while. She's had major injury issues. She was told, was it last year she was told that her she may not play tennis at that again. level again and suddenly she's here, she's 26, which is not a spring chicken, I suppose, when it comes to yeah, tennis. It's like a fleeting enough kind of career. <laughs> yeah. What are your expectations on, on it from her? Um, well, so we've been kind of talking, like she's been, her name has been mentioned in the mix a few years ago, kind of she had a good season in 2019. She made the uh, Australian Open, I think, semi-final mm. and beat some really good players. Like she's she's 5-0 and oh against top three players. Like so she's she's had some great wins in, in her career. But injury, she's been plagued with injury. And, and as you said last year, um, having that almost career-ending injury. But I mean, you know, you just, if she can get, get a run of form this this tournament, you know, who knows what, what she can perform in the grass, or can produce in the grass season and then in the hardcore you'd like to see that it's not just a, a fleeting moment for her um, but in coming into the final on Saturday I see Shiontek taking this fairly handily It's hard to make a case against isn't it like and as you say the world number one is sort of tied up she's overwhelming favourite it seems and let to, yet to lose a set um, in France uh, I kind of was thinking about it last night and sort of had the same view as I have about the Champions League final in that like I just kind of um, I think everybody expects it to go one direction <laughs> Yeah, and that's almost disappointing because... It is a little bit. Yeah, you go into the final and we kind of know that Svantec mm. is going to win that. I mean, it would have been a, a spicy final between Sabalenka and Svantec because Sabalenka has actually challenged Svantec this year. She's beaten her twice. Mm. So there, it, there's a bit of a rivalry going on there. And as I said, I think they're playing for the number one ranking and, and all that. So it would have been great to see that. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's it's pretty one-sided in Svantec's favour. Interesting to see her beat the Brazilian, uh, first Brazilian to make a Grand Slam Women's semi final since 1968, I read somewhere. So, like, it's good to see different countries who are, that aren't usually represented in Grand Slams represented because clearly the interest spikes in, in countries as a result. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and Brazil isn't exactly, they're no. not necessarily known for their, their tennis, except for Gustavo Curtin. He, mm. he won it, I think, 26 years ago. He won the, the, on the men's side. And since then, they haven't produced any really top, like, mm. top 20 players. Um, and she's a super player. I did admire. We, she had a great season last year, at the start of the season, and then fell apart in, in the grass. Uh, season as well. She won a few tournaments last year on clay. Um, a st- an amazing ball striker. I was watching that match there yesterday with Shontek. She really challenged Shontek. That was the first time she'd been pushed this tournament, Shontek, by Haddad Meyer. She just plays this lefty, very powerful mm. game. Um, has an amazing attitude. Like, I mean, if anyone's watching, she's a super player to, to, uh, aspire to be like on the court. She's so positive, has great attitude. So you just hope again, like, you know, that she can emulate that now going forward. Yeah. Well, Adrian's point there, but the, the, I guess the age of a tennis player, the perfect age for a tennis player. Like what? what like Shvantec's only what twenty two. Mm-hmm. So like, what's the? I know it changes person to person and, and player to player in terms of their body. But what is the general rough prime age for a prime. tennis player? They say that your athletic um, ability, like your best athletic ability, is when you're kind of in your later twenties. Right. Um, Do tennis players tend to get burned out a bit a bit quicker though. Well, that's the truth, especially when they start. And if you've played from juniors, like underage, so young, all the yeah. way through. But then again, let's look at the, the mm-hmm. men's semi-final today. Alcaraz is 20 and Djokovic 36, yeah, 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 both yeah, in yeah. their prime. Well, their prime, if, yeah. if you can say that for yeah. Djokovic. But, you know, what is the best? I mean, phys- physiologically, I think it's in your, your kind of your mid to late 20s is mm-hmm. where you've developed and you're... But again, in tennis, it seems to be now that the players are a lot younger. Again, there was a bit of a, it used to be like when I was playing, when I was a kid, sorry, when I was like, you know, 12, 13, 14, a lot of the younger like Russian players, like 17, 18, they, they were dominating the game then. And then it, then we obviously saw the big three in the men's game. So yeah. we followed them through the years and as they got older. So it was kind of hard to, to make that decision. Is it? You know, nineteen twenty? is it 30? Um, but we'll see anyway today in, yeah. the, in the men's semis. Um, 
So talk to us about that Djokovic against Alcaraz and it was probably the game that everybody kind of um, wanted to see at some point and Djokovic with the record that he has in Paris the form that we see of Alcaraz the fact that they don't often meet the fact that the number one ranking is on the line like it's just <laughs> set up so well This is yeah this is going to be popcorn tennis like uh, this is the most highly anticipated match of the tournament I think once the draw came out everyone was hoping for uh, an mm. Alcaraz Djokovic semi-final it would have been ideal if they were playing in the final but um it's going to be, I think, a really, really exciting match. Uh, both players, he said, gunning for, for different goals. You know, Djokovic, this is his 45th Grand Slam semi-final and it's only Alcaraz's second. Nice However, nice. Alcaraz is the in-form player at the moment. Everyone's talking about him. Um, if you look at it on paper, you know, Djokovic, obviously, if you look at it this season, for example, he hasn't had the best um, clay seasons, probably one of his worst clay seasons coming into Roland Garros. He's had a niggling injury. Okay, yes, granted he won the Australian Open and he won the tournament before that. But then we've been talking, it's all talk about Alcaraz this season. Mm. Um, however, then when we look at those stats, like uh, Djokovic's 45th Grand Slam, it's it's only his second. Crazy. It's crazy. And yeah. Djokovic is going for his 23rd Grand Slam and uh, Alcaraz is going for his second. If you look you know. at that, you just think there's no debate, but there is. Yeah, but it's Djokovic. Yeah. You, know, yeah. we just can, you know, we can never count out Djokovic. And I, I think there's a few exterior motives as yeah. well for him, you know. Um, like, for example, he's going for the number one ranking, as we said, but also he's going to try and break Nadal's 22 mm. all-time Grand Slam. They're both on 22. Mm. And what a better way for Djokovic, in his eyes, to do it than to do it in, in Nadal's house. You know, if he was to win against Alcaraz and then win the French Open, he would be knocking Nadal off his mm. 22 perch on his. Not in your eyes, is that what you're saying? Or uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> am I reading too much into that? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I wonder as well, like, uh, Kachinov gave Djokovic a bit of a scare early in the tournament, like, all, nearly going two sets behind. Uh, saying early, Djokovic came through the match ultimately, but sometimes, like, a player like Djokovic nearly needs that in an earlier round to. Get, get the rock up their ass. Yeah, definitely. And as, as the tournament as the tournament progresses and it gets deeper into the tournament, you know, um, Djokovic starts finding his form mm. more and more, and, and this is where he thrives. Is you know these quarterfinals, semifinals, those big stages. Um, Hakanov, yeah, he, he I think Djokovic started off quite sluggish in that yeah. match. He was a little bit <laughs> lack. He, I just he didn't really seem to have his form. And then once the tiebreaker came, he just absolutely annihilated seven nil. He didn't yeah. make didn't make a single mistake. Um, and again, like that, Djokovic comes alive in these big moments. You know, and we're gonna expect. To see that today, like he, there's going to be no pushing pushover in Djokovic today, and and uh, again in those matches like the the Hakanov one where he, where he won the tiebreaker, you just see like those moments like in in the previous rounds as well. He he had five tiebreakers. He's won all five tiebreakers fairly easily. Mm. It's just like this man in those moments. Yeah, it's just button. yeah, yeah. So superhuman. Uh, it sounds like where you're saying that Swantag is going to. That, that's done that conversation is over Maybe, what, yeah. what, uh, what's the makeup of the men's final going to be and who's going to win it well firstly looking at the semi-final uh, it's gonna, I, I do feel like the winner of today's semi-final between Alcaraz and Djokovic will, will ultimately anyway. be the, the, the winner mm. um, the other semi-final between Zverev and, and Rude is almost just uh, it's been completely forgotten yeah. about um, I think it could be uh, I want to say Alcaraz today in five sets okay Ooh. yeah wow and I think Zverev will come through on the other side. Yeah. Plenty of emotion for him as well, given what happened to him last year and a bit yeah. of redemption. And Great to see him back, though, yeah. a year later. Given the circumstances, yeah. 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 All right. Interesting, set, uh, sits past talking after the Alcaraz game about how he felt sluggish. He, he'd been taking, I guess it depends on where, where, who's putting the, the nighttime game, the, the late match, but mm. like he was taking sleeping pills and he was taking naps during the day. 
and he said he just wanted to test that to see if it helped him and he said it had the complete opposite effect, effect yeah. Comple- felt completely sluggish but I'd say that's that must be a difficult thing for tennis players get, like depending on where you are in the schedule and, and the time you start you just have to completely do different things with your body clearly the sleeping pills and the naps didn't work no not for him he was blaming the melatonin and yeah. losing that match yeah I mean the scheduling plays a huge part in in France or in Paris in the French Open they don't schedule those matches too late because there's only one night match now mm. so they, um, to avoid that issue because all the other Grand Slams other than Wimbledon play night matches and they have two matches so then if you look back at the Australian Open I don't remember Andy Murray he played that match till half four in the morning yeah. and then had you know was back on, on in the tour, the next day about eight hours later and then was playing the next day like that was him done mm-hmm. he played a five set match and, mm-hmm. and you know that, that has a huge impact when they're they're, if they're playing those night matches but then they, they generally schedule them later on two days later to give them the best yeah. chance to recover but it does make a difference absolutely like that's a huge part of it um, and you see that's why Alcaraz and Djokovic are playing first today because the other guys played the, the later match uh, yeah. two days ago Now that's all the less serious stuff out of the way a couple of months ago I got on to our um, series producer if we could call him that Cullen Buhig to uh, say I've been down in Bushy Park and I've seen this new craze and we have to get on it. When are you free to come down and have a game of paddle? And uh, <laughs> I get on to uh, Bushy Park Tennis Club, whatever they're called. Yeah. And uh, th- that has all gone cold anyway. I need to reinvigorate. But then I suddenly discover that your uh, international <laughs> tennis career is, uh, sorry, racket career is back on track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So European what's games. happening? Yeah, so I'm heading to the European Games in, uh, in a week and a half. How long have you been playing? Pa- t- a lot of people watching won't have a clue what we're talking about so let's establish is this the same as pickleball or is it different? no no different so pickleball is like paddleball is almost the, or paddle is the equivalent of like pickleball pickleball is huge in the States yeah, yeah. paddle is massive in Europe although now paddle is the fastest growing sport in the world right. um, it's a mixture of, of tennis and squash so it's played in like a glass glass enclosure and you can use the back wall so the ball just has to bounce before it hits the back wall you have to have doubles is that right yeah it's only doubles yeah yeah. Um, and it's played with this small smaller racket with kind of like this big head and uh, the tennis balls are are the balls are less pressurised than tennis balls so there's a dead or hit off it like yeah yeah. yeah. and uh, it's the same scoring as tennis scoring system as tennis other than that there's pretty much no uh, Is is it harder than tennis um, I'm learning that it's not the same as tennis okay. anyway because when I first started playing paddle I was basically just a tennis player on the paddle court and in time I'm realising that's actually not helpful to be really powerful and everything because the ball just hits back off the wall okay. and gives them the advantage. Mm. So um, learning the techniques and stuff has been frustrating okay. because you think I'll just throw another racket in my hand it'll be the same thing. Um, but it's a really great sport. It's really quick, like uh, fast-paced and it's, it's very tactical as well. So I'm really enjoying um, the learning process. Jenny's one of these annoying, annoying people like plays rugby sevens soccer fucking everything yeah. like regardless of the sport just pick it up and he's good at it so the, just you, the Euros yeah. Euros coming up yes the European Games are on in, in Krakow in uh, a week and a half's time so heading over there so Class. really excited yeah that's brilliant uh, so yeah this is my new thing yeah unreal we'll check in before my, my, my third attempt at trying to get to the Olympics now so different third different sport yeah. trying to get to it's, it's in the Olympics obviously. not next year they're trying to get it in okay. for 2028 um, it's definitely where would that leave you in terms of the conversation oh, we were having earlier about the going? age yeah <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> in don't your prime, in your prime. Yes, exactly. This is that's, never that's, give up on I'm your dreams. O- I'm okay with that. <laughs> so uh, now that we're on air, I can say that if I get Boohig interested again and corral somebody else, you're going to show us what to do. If we go down to Bushy Park. Yeah. Definitely, I, I'll <laughs> absolutely take you. Yeah. I'd have to like, yeah. start googling, or YouTubing, like how do you actually play this game? I think Colin will fancy his chances better with paddle maybe than tennis. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shots fired. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks, yes, for coming. Yes, great. In. Thanks, guys. Thanks, there. It-
It's uh, quarter to nine. Uh, do keep those comments coming into us, by the way. We've um, loads of them coming in about all the different bits and bobs. I think we're going to turn our attention uh, to Camogie now. I'm delighted to say that the Dublin captain, Ashling Marr, is on the line. Morning, Ashling. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Uh, welcome back to the show. Friend of the show, I was saying earlier on, you're kind of becoming now at this stage, so, and uh, we're happy for that as well, particularly given the proximity to the kickoff of the Championship, obviously, against Tip and the Rag tomorrow, the opening game in round uh, Group 2, um, and the top two in each group will through to at least a quarter-final. So you've Dublin, Kilkenny, Tipperary and Wexford, and no room for a slip, and a tough opener. Yeah, yeah, tough opening game, all right. Uh, the other two groups, Group 1 and Group 3, had their first round last weekend, so uh, we were watching that and kind of Wasn't to get going now. Looking forward to getting into it. Points piece this time last year in in Parnell Park and like Dublin unlucky, certainly unlucky not to get over the line at that point. Uh, Obviously some things have changed since that but an indicator that could be very tight. Yeah, look, I think we've had great games with Tip over the years. You know, we know what Tip are going to bring. They're a strong team. They're a good hurling team. Uh, the Rag obviously is their is their home venue. That's their stomping ground. So it's a it's a tough place to go and get a win. Um, but we've had our fair share of battles with them down there as well. So looking forward to getting out and getting into it. I'd imagine Ashing, you like this like as a player. Do you like this time of the year? Because you think back to the winter months, probably when you're slogging through training and pre seasons and all the rest. But I'd imagine when you're in the thick of of games and matches, it it just makes life a little bit easier. Yeah, 100%. I think anybody anybody who picked the summer hurling over the winter hill runs and uh, the conditioning where you're told to leave your hurls at home and all the rest. Uh, so definitely enjoying being back at this time of year and championship. I think the weather and everything the last few months has really given that kind of summer buzz, that championship buzz. Um, the ground is hard and, and everybody feels like they're in summer hurling time. So yeah, definitely. This is These are the months you play for, you know. Is this your first run of captaincy for Dublin? Uh, it is, yeah. Yeah, it is. Is it your first run of captaincy Overall, or is it something you've done before? I've done a few of the club bits and that, um, but first first run with County, all right, yeah. And how are you finding it? Yeah, yeah, good. Like to be honest with you, you know, it's a great team. There's there's plenty of girls in there that have that have a good bit of experience that are are doing as much, if not more, of the work than I am. You know, so uh, it's not it's not falling on my shoulders too much uh, in terms of uh, workload or anything like that. You know, there's plenty of people to sh- to spread it around with. So uh, I'm I'm just taking just taking the title and not taking any of the work to go with it. So <laughs> that, well, so. As any good leader would say, Ashling, um, <laughs> like, but it is true that the model or the idea of captaincy, like even of leadership, has changed so much over the last sort of 10 years probably what type of um what type of a captain do you see yourself is it just to expand a little bit on what you've said is it like uh are you vocal is it lead by example or yeah where do you sit on that yeah, I mean, I'm probably one of those players that never really stops talking regardless of whether I'm captain or not. So the only thing is the girls are forced to listen to me a little bit more now. Um, but no, I think I think exactly what you said there with the leadership groups and stuff, that's something we started doing probably, geez, probably five or six years ago at this stage, kind of um, developing those leadership groups where you have girls from whether it's each age group or whether it's making sure you have a girl from one of the clubs that has bigger numbers just to make sure the kind of whole team is represented um, by a group of maybe five or six players that can come together and you know make leadership groups as as a mini team as such within the team um, and I think that's that's very effective so uh, a lot of the time as captain maybe all you're doing is kind of being a communication between that group and management or making sure messages go up and down um, accurately between the two but I think you know 
that that leadership group uh, idea is is really taken off um, in Camogie anyway in recent years. I think it's very effective. So happy to let them them do the bulk of the work, and I'll just keep giving out as well anyway. Aside from that, <laughs> it can be like even that stuff that you've described there. It can be like an emotional drain on some level where you're you know on one part obviously trying particularly given your position and given your role around uh, place balls. It can be an emotional drain obviously to sort of pull away from that. Do you uh, do you find that? Yeah, I think to be honest, like as a player, you know, I, I remember like playing Camogie in college and stuff like that and having a county team and having a, a pretty serious club team as well and thinking, will I play with college as well, won't I? And coming to the conclusion, look, I, I'll go in and I'll play, but I won't get too emotionally involved and I won't get involved in any of the background stuff and I'll just show up and I'll train when it suits me. Um, and sure, that never happens because <laughs> <laughs> it's the type of player you are. Do you know what I mean? You can't be involved. In, like I was playing Division Three colleges with Trinity when I started, and like it doesn't matter what level you're playing at, you nearly get more frustrated playing at that level, trying to drive the standards up, than mm. you would going out and playing in senior into county or something. So it, it's probably the type of player I am that I'll always be emotionally involved in, in where the team is and what we're doing. Um, and I, I don't think that changes um, because because you're captain. Obviously, it is something that, you, you know, you manage with your own play, regardless of who you are on the team. Um, but I, I'm, I'm getting enough experience at this stage that I'm, I'm kind of getting used to that. So Hopefully, you won't have to sample too much of it. I know, obviously, the Leinster final didn't go your way, but hopefully, you won't have to sample too much of the on the defeat side of things. But do you think it? You take it harder as captain. Um, geez, I don't know. My family probably say I stopped talking to them anyway for the last few <laughs> years after losses. So, um, I don't know. I suppose yes and no. I don't. I don't know that being captain necessarily is what makes me take it harder. But definitely, you know, I'm one of the senior players probably on the team this year. Probably yeah. have you know more experience and a lot of the girls it's a very it's a very young team that's in there so I think from that side of it maybe you take that little bit more responsibility on your shoulders or take it a little bit harder Um, you know look you're, you're not going to get to play forever there's only so many Leinster finals you get to there's probably even fewer you get to where you come into the closing minutes and, and you're giving Kilkenny a good run so obviously going to take a loss like that hard but uh I think in general you know we can we can look back and say it was a strong Leinster campaign for ourselves you know, good wins over Wexford and Mead and, and getting a good game against Kilkenny down in Nolan Park. I mean, short of winning it, there's little else you can ask for than that, you know, in terms of uh, All-Ireland Championship prep. So so still still able to eventually look back and reflect on it as, as a positive experience, if not in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, I, I know it's tough sometimes actually to take the positives out of, a, out of a defeat, but you really do have to look at that Kilkenny game and say, right, it was in Nolan Park, they're All-Ireland Champions, you put in a, a, an unbelievable performance and executed a game plan really, really well. And, and also even, I think uh, your manager was speaking about the fitness levels afterwards as well, even towards the tail end of the match, you know, still going for it. So there's so many positive things to take out of that game. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of what we'd worked on in the previous two games kind of came true for us in that Kilkenny game um, in terms of, you know, we like we'd a really close game with Wexford um, in the first round. You know, we were in some ways lucky to come out on top of that then by two points, I think it was in the end. And then we had a more comprehensive win against Mead and brought a lot more scorers into it and uh, had a lot more girls uh, taking points and stuff from play. So that was something that we really wanted to continue into the Kilkenny game. And it was it was something that we, we managed to, kind of improve on and, and to integrate into our performance in the final so like definitely a lot of positives from that perspective in the type of performance we're going we're, we're going after and what we're trying to do um, but yeah you know yeah, we, we see these things in hindsight but ultimately we're, we're playing you know because we want to win and because we want to come out on top of those games so we'll still use it as, as fuel and drive on again now for, for the All-Ireland 
you've spoken on the, uh, to us before on the show, Ashling, about the eight or nine managers that have, you've had in your time at Dublin and the churn that that and the lack of consistency is a very obvious thing. Obviously, it jumps out when you talk about those sort of numbers. Um, you might say, given that he's given you the captaincy, that uh, maybe this is a daft question, but does it feel as a bit more settled under Jerry McQuaid now over the last little while? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, look, you know, uh, obviously we had uh, we have had a lot of turnover in Dublin Camogie. We, you know, a little a little bit more change around at the start of this year as well than we would have wanted to have. But uh, to be fair to Jerry and uh, and and Mickey and the rest of the lads that are gone in there, you know, I think they've they've done a great job. Um, you can see the improvements in us. I think from early in the league until now, you know, they were they were handed a fairly new team with a very high turnover rate. Um, partially because of those reasons that we've discussed before, I suppose about that kind of lack of consistency for us with management. Um, and to be fair to the lads, I think you know they've they've done a great job at kind of helping us to gel and bond as a team. And I think we've made we've made huge strides in in the uh, short period of time that they've been in there. So yeah, so so far this year, so good, and and hopefully we can continue to build on it. Like you've chatted about the the closing of the gap with Kilkenny, who I'm sure are are, uh, are a uh, at this point becoming a, a frustration to say the least. Is there an overall sense, uh, Ashling, that you're not a million miles off where you need to be in terms of the top teams? Yeah, I I think so. You know, I, I think yeah, not just ourselves, but I think there's a number of kind of middle tier teams if you like who are constantly you know chomping at the bit and pushing to to make that break up um you know waterford were we're almost there last year tip have been very close in in, in previous years as well uh, and our, ourselves too you know running close on on the Leinster final I, I think we're seeing that push the whole time uh tip obviously won Munster championship this year waterford knocked cork out after them women and probably i don't know the previous 15 or something like that monster titles so i think you know across the country there is there is that constant push on and you know cr- credit to the top three Kilkenny, Cork and Galway they do just continue to manage to push that push that barrier on ever so slightly each year um, to keep pressure and everybody coming behind them but I do think the, the gap is narrowing and it's only a matter of time until we do see a bit of a bit of change over in that you know It's a bit of a psychological thing actually too isn't it like when you get close to Kilkenny in a game like that away from home uh, and even heading into this temporary game all of a sudden as opposed to maybe five, six, seven years ago there's an attitude I'd say in the Dublin camp that you can beat anyone really and it, it comes down to that mental side of things as well I suppose it does yeah absolutely and you know you have those like uh, those small moments that can have a huge influence I think on on teams in the larger scale of things and you know you have a, a swing of a point or two in a game that either puts you winning it or losing it and it can make a huge difference to the trajectory that that team go on thereafter so um, I think you know it's just important for us to, to keep pushing to keep creating those chances for us to keep putting ourselves in in the boiling pot with five minutes to go against some of the big teams and, and we will eventually get that break and get one of those big games over the line um, and I think once we do you know it'll be it'll be a huge building point for us with, with Dublin then thereafter I wanted to ask you about general sort of progression about Camogie and it was particularly in light of a conversation we'd had on the show last week and I ask you it in, in the context on, of uh, an article that's appeared in some of the back pages uh, this morning about um, fixtures of disgrace writing Paul Keane in the Irish Star here and it's a Cork story about some of the dual pair, players been a, a clash um, arising at uh, championship level. Uh, between Camogie and football, and and that's maybe the context of the question. But we'd sp- spoken to the former England uh, football international Jilly Flaherty last week about um, Chelsea's WSL win, and it had been sort of a lot of writing about the tweaks that they'd made. I think to their preparation, particularly around stuff like sleep and recovery and tweaks like that, that obviously always come out in the aftermath of a big win like that. Uh, and we were sort of, I was a bit surprised about the 
comparisons with the men's game in the sense that like those things have been around forever and these are teams with obviously big budgets on the men's side and but all these things were known in the men's game and it sort of I was asking the question as to why they hadn't been brought over to the women's game sooner if they were known. Um how is Camogie set up in terms of best practice in your view now at the minute um across those areas like preparation, obviously to do the games and then recovery? Yeah, I think uh, the position that we're in now is incomparable to where it was when I first played with Dublin Camogie, which was geez, 10 years ago, say at this stage, um, like in terms of the supports that we get, you know, we have a, a nutritionist available to us. We have a sports psychologist available to us. We have an S&C coach in with us pretty much full time, um, you know, sports, masseuse, physio, all that sort of stuff. Um, I do think that I'm like I'm coming from probably a little bit more of a privileged position in Dublin that, uh, you know, we've had that cross-code sponsorship from AIG and uh, we've probably got a lot more supports as a Camogie team than a lot of the other Camogie teams would have across the country. You know, I know girls from other counties would have would have been really struggling to even have physios at training sessions um, and things like that. So, like, I, I don't speak for Camogie in that regard. I do think that, that Dublin are, are, are well looked after and, um, does the exact gap still exist? Yeah, 100%, absolutely it does. Um, and the way that it comes true most for me is um, in the things that, you know, as a county board, the our Camogie county board can't control. So whether that's like access to pitches, access to facilities, you know, something that people don't realise. I think a lot of the time when they give out about the, the lack of access that Camogie teams have to the likes of Parnell Park or Crow Park or anywhere like that is that, Obviously, those grants belong to the GAA, and you know, Camogie, Camogie is not part of the GAA at present. Um, so we are relying on, on on goodwill anytime we get access to somewhere like that. And you know, it's if you look at it through that lens, it's more understandable that Camogie isn't uh, isn't a priority on those pitches. But we will never achieve equality, and we will never, you know, achieve a level playing field for for young girls and young boys coming up until we we do have equal access, and until we do integrate Camogie into the GAA, and we get to a position where you know, a young girl growing up has has equal entitlement to resources that are present as, as a young boy growing up. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's that's become abundantly clear in the conversations that have been had around integration over the last probably 12 months more at this stage. Um, and it's, it's just a question of, of acting on it now and, and, and trying to get it into, into place as quickly as possible. As quickly as we can hurry all of that up, the better. And uh, but, but very well put. Ashing, best of luck tomorrow. Thanks a million for jumping on. Cheers, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. That's the Dublin Camogie captain, Ashley Marr. Always interesting stuff. It always just sort of jumps out to me, that little bit of like, particularly, so we talked about it with Jilly last week. Mm. The comparison is there. Could you not just adopt that stuff in? And I know there's budgetary stuff, but like, that's just something that needs to happen. Seems and obvious, then, doesn't and it? the men's side as well. Like, these are all concepts, like she's talking about it coming relatively recently into Camogie around recovery and sleep and all that stuff. Like, they're not, they're not new anymore. It's not like... Surely, like management teams, like and I know it does come back, particularly in an amateur sport or whatever, to the budget side of things. But like, you know, where where we know about this stuff, could we not be making and uh, you know inroads into implicating some of it into the lives of these athletes that are making such a bloody effort to put the best foot forward? You see some positive things, like <clears throat> as we talked about at the top of the show, the like for example the prize money going into the women's World Cup this year. That's a, a step in the right direction. But then, like in, in the GA, you see stories like the Kildare Camogie story this year has been won, you know, in the intermediate side of things that just yeah. uh, shouldn't be happening. And then also, even in Meath, now maybe this is just a, a one off, but Davy Nelson leaving the position as yeah. Meath manager this week, like right slap bang in the middle of the middle of a championship. It just seems like not the done thing. Now, you see it in, in the men's game, of course, managers leave not usually in the middle of the season. Um, 
So that'd be a concern. You know that you see stories like that happening, uh, and maybe it's unfair to just say that's in, that's on the women's side of things. But certainly, you don't want to be seeing too many stories about ilk. Um, but yeah, a lot of the stuff that Ashley's talking about there, it's so obvious. Yeah, like just do it as you say. And like the Cork story, so as uh, Paul Keane is writing this, and it is across some of the other papers, Hannah Looney is branded the latest championship fixtures clash uh, Cork Steel players as an absolute disgrace. So this was a schedule. Uh, um, to play down in a big game in Group 1 of the Camogie Championship that's on Saturday week and the same day the Cork footballers are down to play Galway and there's four dual players yeah like like I mean you know uh, hurry the day that the the merger the, the, the uh, merger happens integration like, as they were calling it this week if that I, I don't see the impediment to that I think that obviously they've put the committee together and Mary McAleese is chairing it and that mm. should help obviously move things along but I don't hear too many dissenting voices as to that why that shouldn't happen like you know they, uh, on a local level they, it's one of the strange ones in that on a local level at a lot of clubs the clubs are way far ahead of yeah. what's happening at the top in that they are sharing the smarter ones sharing facilities and allowing it a one club for all scenario but um, and, I, and I kind of hinted at this during the week as well like if, if you're Jonathan Burns coming in as GA president next year on a what, what is it three year term like the GA integration slash, slash merger that can be his his thing that he's remembered for. You think back to some of the GA presidents of, of of years gone by, and you almost forget they existed because yeah. they didn't actually do anything. Like they were just a, that figure figurehead that sat at the top of the GA and presented the trophies or whatever else. They did nothing. Um, so, like I think back to maybe a Monaghan bias, but you think back to Sean McCaig, for example, who adopted the Article Twenty One, wasn't it, allowing the former British soldiers to play Gaelic game? You know, something with with actual impact. That you can be remembered on. Something well, that'll, that be, that'll be a big one. That's the biggest. Well, that's Charlotte, Charlotte's issue. legacy. Like, can he bring it in in between twenty twenty four and twenty twenty seven? The appetite is there. I don't think that that's as hard to do. That's the bizarre thing to me. Yeah. That's probably the nobody issue, Shane. I, that, it doesn't seem as if the British soldier one was so controversial yeah. and addressed so many sort of um, areas of dispute. I don't know who is disputing this. It just yeah. like. Go ahead and do it, like. But and the um, only impediments to it, possibly, and from chatting to Katie, uh, Katie Liston and Conor Myler during the week on, yeah. on the integration, like the only impediments are financial. Do you know? Yeah, it's so, always financial. Yeah. So or else use use of pitches is a lot of money slashing around in there. Yeah, hundred percent. Fix it, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, we mentioned touched on the news from Shelburne just a little bit earlier, and uh, confirmation on the Shelburne website this morning that the Turkish media mogul. Um, Akun Ilikali is the owner of a global media company and has become the majority shareholder in Shelburne Football Club. Um, uh, they say founders one, founded one of the biggest independent media and entertainment companies, empowered with the vision to deliver. Bum 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 bum. The investment will be used to support the growth and development of the club by investing in the men's and women's first teams, the academy, its facilities, with an ambition to make Shelburne Ireland's most successful football club and is expected to be uh, bring additional benefit and create material synergy, material synergy between uh, Shelburne and Hull, who are also Hull City, who are also owned uh, by the same owner. So, speak. Um, yeah. Um, like interesting material synergy. Don't know what that is. Is that like a transfer of players? <laughs> I mean, what else are we talking about there? Don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, yeah, the Turks. The Turks on board in Shelburne. Interesting. Yeah. Like, obviously, as a, as a manager with Damien Duffner, it'll be interesting to see how this how this impacts the team uh, and the women's team as well. Like, 
I suppose it's good, it's good news for, for Shelburne, isn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. from an investment perspective. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what fans make of, make of it all. But um, clearly, this guy has come in and he's wanting to invest in football. Hull City has been the, the example that he's, that he's already got his tentacles in there. And um, yeah, I think from a Shelburne fan's perspective, you're, you're enjoying this. I was, I was just Googling there the... I just loved. I was googling how many times Damien Duff played against Turkey in his international career. I, I was so. I was just that kind you're, of nerd. You're, you're, what was the outcome of that? Three, three times, including international friendly in 2003 was the last time Adrian. So fun fact. If it comes up in the crappy quiz, you'll thank me. I won't because I'm not doing the crappy quiz. You're not in the quiz today. No, 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 I'm too busy. Too busy. You're too busy. Yeah. People are going to go nuts in no, the comments. No, they won't. No, they won't. No, they won't. Do you not? Do you not know that you have a a, a fairly large scale fan base when it comes to the crappy <laughs> quiz? Um, a few comments don't move on hold on a few comments here from a little bit earlier from some of the stuff we discussed Shifty Lad says the games in provincial towns are great a few years ago Wicklow uh, earned the right to play Dublin in Leinster moved the game to Portlaoise instead of Ockram Mm -hmm. a place further away um, for Wicklow than Dublin says Shifty Uh, I remember playing a a, watching a um, not to bring Everett back to Monaghan but Monaghan played Leash in an All-Ireland qualifier and it was in Navan and I was thinking, this is brilliant. It was a lovely hot summer's day. Navin was coming alive with a proper match. Carrick and Shannon will be the same for that Galway Armagh game. I'm probably coming around to the side of just let the game be played in Carrick and Shannon. I can understand the Galway and the Armagh County Board's frustration because everyone's looking for tickets for a game of like for a game like this between two of the top what ten teams in the country. Um, so I can see both sides of the argument. But yeah, Carrick and Shannon on a day like that with the stag parties floating around as well, no doubt. Um, yeah, 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 totally. And I, I'm absolutely on board with, I mentioned earlier on that it was in Mullingar last weekend. The yeah, sun yeah. was shining. It was like the Caribbean. I had the two kids with me. They were, um, they had all the treats with them, Shane. They were good to go. Right. Very, actually, uh, annoyed outside. I'm going to say annoyed outside. I was, it was in Mullingar, mm-hmm. the county ground for Westmeath. They were playing Galway. Yeah. Tried to get some Westmead stuff. Now, I know you'll make the point about Maroon and White, and it sure isn't it all the same. Mm-hmm. But there was stuff, hats and flags with the crest on them, couldn't get a Westmead one outside. Only really? Galway, only Galway for sale, and we were in a good time. You joking? No, in Mullingar. Yeah, the lads who were selling them had come in from Galway, I presume. And I just thought, you know, surely there'd be a market there for some. Some. I anyway, it's just a minor little. Uh, what do you call the oaks? The, the headbands and the wristbands and stuff. At least you can buy those and they do both counties. Well, the last time we were down there, we got them and I paid a fiver for two small flags and they were in tatters by the time we got home. So I said, I'm not making that mistake again. No, just the, oh, the regular one and the wooden stick job. Yeah, the, 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 when I was younger, I used to always have to have a flag at matches. It was just one of those things. You used to have the, the headbands, the scar. I used to have... Oh, you'd be a definite headband man. There's no, you see, question, like, so question, Joe, no question about that. Oh, Westmead, no doubt so, about it. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> Monaghan are so people get this wrong so Cavan are, are blue and white mm. Monaghan are white and blue Arrick, well, as, in, as in hold on a minute so the white is closest to the flag pole so it's white and blue blue is furthest away I, 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 I understand your point if you look like, at them, if you, if it makes no difference to me but my point is Westmead flag and Galway flag is no I the think same? they're both the same yeah, yeah. there's not there's no, not, not one that's white and maroon I don't think anybody's thinking about it that deep that, these are important it's, details nobody notices that that is the thing if you're at a Monaghan Cavan match and you look up to the flags for the national anthem you'll see one of them is, is white nearest to the flagpole and one of them is blue 
JP Wright uh, voice actor that was a school day here who's always uh, selling himself with his uh, handle here Amber Barrett is Johnny Walters of the women's game and has to travel I'm certainly with you with the last part of that Bosang David says hopefully uh, Vera has given the heads up to players and not going to make it that's the important thing for the squad feeling no one left uh, to find out by a news announcement I doubt that they would we shall see. Sean Ryder says Croke Park was empty after the Galway Armagh game last year. Be no issue filling the lower tier in Croke Park. And Richard Murphy opens a conversation here that we just don't have time to get into. But why would you want an Italian team to win? All Roma did in the Europa final was dive, play act, and time waste. Ah, uh, why would anyone want an Italian team to win against Manchester City? Well, I think that's the, you've struck on it there at the end. Isn't I that mean, the key point? Jesus. Enough said. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. You've heard about uh, La Rochelle's Everest-inspired run to the Champions Cup title, the man behind that, and more in the realm of theming and sport. A man described by Ronan Agarra three weeks ago as a key part of the La Rochelle jigsaw is on the line. David Sharkey, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks, many for jumping on. Do you accept congratulations uh, for the La Rochelle win? Uh, reluctantly, um, it's nice to be a small part of what is a very exciting uh, story. Um, I think it's it's appealed to lots of people, lots of neutrals out there uh, in Ireland, the UK, and uh, in France as well. So yeah, it's nice to be a very very small part of that jigsaw. Did you do you get to be part of the La Rochelle staff on the day? Do you get to the games? How does that work out? So when I go out for visits to Marcel de Flandre, I would go with the team. I'd be part of the the entourage going in in the midst of a lot of uh, very excited La Rochelle fans with flares and screaming and shouting and wondering who's that strange guy in a blue jacket. Uh, the last time I was out there, I managed to wear the colours of Bayonne uh, rather than uh, La Rochelle that weekend. So I think I'm going to have to get a bit more kit if I am to be part of the backroom staff on de- game day. We done at the Aviva. I didn't go. No, I made the call early enough not to go. Uh, I am La Rochelle's only Leinster fan, and uh, I could do it a year off after the last three years. Uh, But no, I made the call that on game day in that instance, uh, my job was done, I suppose, throughout the week, uh, through what myself and Raj had sort of set up. So uh, I made the call to, to stay at home and try and stay calm after 11 minutes, which I just about managed It must be a very cool thing to, like you painted a lovely picture there earlier on with that sort of... Uh, being part of the backroom team for that thing where you're not there week in week out it still holds that novelty almost of 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 it being a very cool thing I presume to do on match day Absolutely no I remember when I went out for pre-season a few years ago uh, I the, the team was sort of in a in a circle in a meeting room and I was observing so I sat behind and Roger was very very clear no 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 you're you're either you're in the huddle or you're out of the room so uh, he's very very keen for me to sort of be be in the midst of it so whenever I've been out it's been very much so uh, as close as I can um, in the warm-up uh, against that game in Bayonne sorry in April I was uh, I was I was sat on the bench up until about maybe 15-20 minutes before kickoff chatting to a few of the, the injured players trying out my pretty terrible French uh, and discussing maybe some of the upcoming games and, and things like that uh, with the group so yeah it's, it's, it's great to be as I said yeah the novelty still hasn't worn off of being a, being a part of it can we spool back a little bit, Dave, just for the people who are coming to it fresh? I think there'll be plenty of rugby fans that are familiar with your story, but there'll be plenty of people who won't. Just to spool back a little bit, first of all, to talk to us about a little bit about what it is you actually do. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Uh, and it's one I have to explain a lot. And when I try to explain it in French, it, it usually falls apart. So uh, thankfully, I don't have to give it, have to try it here today. It's so. safe territory here, yeah. 
<laughs> Merci beaucoup. Um, <laughs> so I've been called lots of things, uh, communications caddy for Raj, a sort of ghost writer for him. But ultimately, I'm a communications uh, consultant. Uh, my, my, my company is Team Architecture Limited. And what we do is we specialize in the use of themes and stories to motivate, engage high performing teams in sport and in business. So, well, what, what on earth does that, all of that mean? So ultimately, I, I support Raj with his key messaging and how we might deliver some of those key messages week to week. So I'll design lots of the pre-match, post-match uh, presentations. I'll de- uh, design some mindset videos or content and I'll sort of try and steer him through what it is he's trying to convey uh, through the use of this uh, this idea of theming, which uh, I've uh, I've sort of stumbled into myself over the last number of years. Was that, um, am I right to say that was from the famous, I call it famous because I think I've watched it three or four times, 1014 podcast? Uh, yes, uh, so I would have been, I would have been coaching myself. I would have listened into some of the, some of the stuff that Raj and, and uh, Scott Robertson would have spoken about on the Ten Fourteen podcast, and that was the first time they'd given any sort of insight. Now they still didn't give a huge amount, no. um, and I sort of took with that and ran with it, and then. Lo and behold, I'm, I'm sort of working with Raj here uh, all these years later. So you start to implicate that. You were involved in uh, rugby coaching at that time with your team. So you come back to them and you say, I've heard this thing. Can we give this a go? Yeah. So I'd actually been working on a project the year before, which was looking at redefining masculinity. So it was based around the idea of character coaching. So lots of people in sport will talk about selecting on character, but not many people talk about developing character. So that was something that I I sort of wanted to look at. So I I was exploring that idea the year before. And then when I saw theming, I thought that was actually a better way to connect those ideas together. Um, So I I started exploring that, heard the podcast, or sorry, heard the the YouTube clip with uh, with Raj and the lads from the 1014 and thought, hang on, this might be a way to do that. Started doing it, wrote it up, and then Raj reached out to me um, to do it for them. It's uh, we are lucky enough to have uh, Raj on the show every so often, David. Uh, give him regularly, actually, um, and it, it strikes me as no surprise that he'd be someone who'd be into the idea of teaming and motivating players in that in that sort of sense. Uh, so essentially, teaming for people who are unfamiliar, you're using metaphors and stories to to motivate and engage players. Yes, yeah, so theming maybe has a. It's sorry, it's far more widespread than people think. Mm. Uh, people use analogies, metaphors all the time in sport, in life, in business. Theming is just maybe being a bit more deliberate with that and aligning it to what you're doing already. It's not an additional thing. It sits on top of what you're trying to deliver. So it's a new way to engage old messages uh, or to deliver you know, uh, content in an engaging way that helps players or people to learn, makes it stick, embeds uh, key ideas around language or key concepts that you want people to use moving forward. So it can be very, very effective if it's done well. Don't get me wrong, it's done terribly in lots of environments. <laughs> and some people I've, I've had to advise going, I think you should probably stop theming because when it becomes a distraction from what it is you're trying to trying to achieve and trying to do, then stop. It has to align to what it is that you're trying to do. And Raj is someone who's a curious uh, coach. He's fairly innovative uh, in, in what he's trying to do. He saw the benefits of theming down in the Crusaders. And I think when he saw I was doing it, he was wondering, well, how good is this, fr- uh, th- this guy's French? It's not good, uh, but we, we, we get by how does the whole process come together, David? Like, what's the starting point for that? Like, is it... So you've talked a little bit about your interactions with Ronan, uh, with the players. So what's the the foundation blocks for that? Because I did wonder, like, who who within the organisation are actually feeding into how that uh, 
theme is landed on or how the um, how how the threads of that fall out then over the course of the season? So predominantly it's through Raj. It's probably expanding. Now that it's our third season doing this, we're sort of expanding things out into connecting with other players. The more players get to know what it is my role uh, is exactly when I show up in a big blue jacket in the opposition colours and I'm walking in with them, uh, wondering again what, what it is that I'm doing there. Um, but it is expanding out, but largely it's through Raj. So I tend to work with with head coaches or, or people, again, close to the top of an organization, if it is, uh, as I said, in business, uh, because ultimately, the, if, if we can deliver the key messages, as I say, the right messages by the right people at the right time can be really, really powerful. So I'll tend to work with Raj, but it has to come from him initially. I can then shape it and suggest things. And the better I know him and the environment, or as I like to say, if I know what the temperature is like in the room, I can know how to pitch the message. But when I'm remote via Zoom or WhatsApp and uh, I'm not in the room regularly, I, I have to work through him to do that now there are other players who will come into that and as i said when i do go out there i try and soak up as much as i can so i get a best sense of how to deliver some of this content uh, to, to rog who are the good who are the good uh, you'll only be as giving as you want to be so treat this question whatever way you want who are the uh, best players in that environment or coaches or whoever you want in la rochelle at the minute that are feeding in so I suppose, again, for me, it makes it makes a lot of sense where a lot of the English speaking players who have an understanding of theming, and that's something that people often miss. The Crusaders are excellent at theming because they've been doing it for years. It's part of their culture. When Raj and I started this three years ago, it wasn't. So we drew on the likes of, you know, Will Skelton, who would have experienced theming at the Crusaders, Ahea West, who left La Rochelle um, uh, last year. He would have explored theming in New Zealand. Um, Tawira Carbarlo, Victor Vito, these kinds of guys. Um, So I would have certainly... um, uh, sat down with them a lot and kind of discussed maybe the, the certain angles but you're looking for the dynamic in the group uh, in some cases um, I certainly did try to speak French with uh, Greg Aldrit until uh, I realised someone told me later he speaks pretty good English uh, after about 15 <laughs> or 20 minutes of me trying to speak to him but uh, the better I get at French the more I'll be able to connect to those players It's one of those I even think it's such a new and modern uh, initiative and it's brilliant as well but like even Ronan probably looks at it now theming as something that he could have utilised through his own playing career like I even think of the the 9 Grand Slam team even up to that stage probably theming wasn't a wasn't a, a thing that was massively u- used or utilised it, uh, I'd probably say it was used in a sort of in a, in a, in a smaller sense mm. um, it was maybe used short term and people tend to do that. They tend to jump between different themes and stories. Uh, whereas I suppose what we're trying to do is, yes, you can have a theme or a story, but it doesn't have to be the same story. What's the message you're trying to convey? The, the famous one that Raj and I started with was uh, Les, uh, Les Premiers, which was the first, because he wanted La Rochelle to win something for the first time because they'd never won anything. So we found a way to thread that story of first, every type of way you could dice a first and I suppose that's why he reached out to me, who's a qualified English teacher, who looks at stories in lots of different ways uh, and is able to maybe do that uh, with it. But I think it's far more prevalent than people think. Uh, when, I, when I give presentations, and I'm giving one tonight to the Australian Institute of Sport at about midnight, uh, so it's a long day for me. But, uh, you know, when I present to people like them, they'll turn around and go, oh, we've actually been doing something like this previously. Uh, we've you know, I, I recognise lots of this. It's just we didn't necessarily call it theming. So, yeah. it, w- listen, whether people knew it at the time or not, it was probably there. Maybe it's not as prevalent as maybe myself and Roger doing it. When you're talking about first there, Le Premier, uh, like, and I'm a, I'm a big space geek and big into the moon landings, Adrian will know where I'm heading with this. But, like, you'd, you'd have 
use the, the the first moon landing, for example, as as one. I know around the 50th anniversary in in uh, 2019 was it of Apollo 11. So, like, even maybe explain to us how you you would use something like that, a, an historical event, and the stories of of Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins as as inspiration in a sporting sense. So the message of Apollo is one that I've, I've used in lots of different ways, and it's such a vast story. Similar to Everest, um, it's a huge story that there's so many different avenues and angles you could look at it. People tend to use Everest or the Apollo missions as one single story. They, they said they go to the moon, they got there, well done, and, and they sort of move on, whereas I'm sort of thinking, hang on, there's a hell of a lot more in there if you, if you dig through it. So we used Apollo in some senses to look at, well, what was the ambition that was shown to, you know, state the aims by JFK that, you know, they were going to go to that going to get to the moon before the Russians at a time when it was crazy to think that they were going to beat the Russians. They were so far behind them. And then you explore maybe the dynamics of uh, the Russians themselves, like who was Yuri Gagarin? Uh, you know, how were the cosmonaut? How was the cosmonaut program so far ahead of them? How do they catch up? And then you start to look at, well, La Rochelle, a few years ago, certainly were not the top dogs of Europe. They were not the top dogs of the top 14. Um, and so who are you trying to catch up to? You know, who do you need to maybe push and state those kinds of aims? And there's lots of stuff, obviously, with the actual uh, landing itself. Um, you know, the dynamics of the of the crew, of uh, when you dig into the, the, the personalities and the people there, and the invisible astronaut of Michael Collins is one that uh, resonates with lots of people. You start to be able to align this to to the group of the challenges that you're facing. So for me, theming where it's most successful is a way of seeing uh, a situation. It is a mindset. It is a perspective. And when you see it in the same way, as I said, there's that alignment and it really resonates with the group. And it becomes something that no one else is doing. Uh, so much of, of, of high performance environments or professional sport is repetitive, is, is uh, our presentation after presentation is boring, sat in a room. Um, this is different. And it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's old messages in a new way that can bring it to life. Seeing as we're dipping into our uh, pet loves here, your Westmead's involvement was a, a one and done or what was the crack with that? <laughs> Yeah, so um, being a, a, a proud Westmead man, I was delighted to, to, to get the call from Jack Cooney a, f- a few years ago to help him. So um, about two years ago, I did some work. It was the season that was still struck by COVID, so the year before the Talton Cup success last year. And uh, I would have done some work with him in, in the background because while I, while I say I specialise in themes uh, and stories as a communication consultant, I'll look at the dynamics between like how are you interacting with your coaches? I'll do communication systems uh, assessments on the day. I'll think about maybe some of the values and the, the messages you're delivering anyway. And so I did that with Jack for a year. And then the following year he came back and said, look, how do we expand this into an actual theme? Uh, and so sitting down with them and the backroom staff, it was fantastic to kind of find what it is they wanted to do and find a story that they belong to, um, which was the story of, of courage in Katie Taylor, which ended. And I was delighted to be there again on the day. And as lots of my friends from Mullingar would say, geez, if I, I never thought Westmead would lift a trophy. And I certainly never thought you'd be on the pitch uh, at the time <laughs> in Crow Park when it happened. So it was it was great to be part of. Uh, Jack's obviously moved on to a national role and, and, and Desi's taken over that. And, um, you know, Desi would have been a, someone I would have bounced an awful lot of ideas off when, when we were delivering the Katie Taylor stuff. But, you know, it, it, you know theming might necessarily be for everyone or it might be for everyone at this stage. You know, he's he's uh, he's got a big challenge in front of him uh, and there's a big match this weekend. Again, I'll be I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on. Um, but it, like so I'm not necessarily working with Westmead this year. So I'm, I'm back to being a fan, uh, which is which, which is fine, too. Yeah. Get back in there if the, if the success of the other year was anything to do with it. Uh, are you still teaching? 
Yeah, so I'm a part-time uh, English teacher as well, and I'm uh, then also running team architecture as well. So, and, uh, and is it that and, is it the dream sorry. that that starts to consume, David? Is that is that is that the ambition? Um. I think it's becoming it's becoming a little bit like that. Like my my plate is getting fuller and fuller. I'm uh, working with an Aussie rules team uh, at the moment, a team in the Premiership next year. Um, I'm doing some work with the backroom staff of Irish Women's Hockey for their Olympic qualifications campaign. So I'm getting busy, which is great. Uh, I do love teaching. Uh, the skills I've learned in teaching help me to support people with their communications and how they present and how they check for understanding and whether messages are really delivered and whether they're really sharp or refined. So. I'd be maybe I wouldn't run away from uh, teaching just ju- just yet, but uh, yeah. for the meantime, anyway, I've managed to get a bit of balance, which is good. Is your Premier League team top six, top half? <laughs> uh, sorry, no, that's Rugby the uh, excuse me, sorry, the Gallagher Rugby Premiership. Premiership. Sorry, okay, okay. No, 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 no. So uh, there's a, there's been one or two international uh, football coaches in touch with me, but uh, nothing's uh, firmed up with that just yet. It strikes me that your, your interest in teaching and, and even history, as you say, David, it, like ties into it so well. Even other themes that I've read that you've utilised, even the Shackleton's escape from the Antarctic, and even the story of Ayrton Senna in Formula One. Like you must, you must, it must be nice to be able to use, I guess, your interest in history to develop these. You might also t- touch on on totems as well. So totems is something I hadn't uh, been familiar with whatsoever. Um, but the Crusaders would have used, for example, in relation to Muhammad Ali. So maybe tell us what what exactly a totem is. So totem is a is a physical reminder of the of the theme. It brings it to life in a subtle way. Uh, so, for example, the Crusaders would have given Man of the Match awards when they were running a Muhammad Ali Rumble in the Jungle theme. They would have given boxing gloves as their Man of the Match award, or it might be a belt if someone has accrued a certain amount of um, a certain amount of Man of the Match awards. For the Ayrton Senna um, theme, which I ran with the the rugby club, which I which I, uh, I was coaching at the last few years, we used to give like an, uh, an Ayrton Senna mug uh, we had, which was to our man of the match. We also actually gave an Alan Prost mug to the opposition man of the match who we would pick because we identified again, again the as much as Senna, uh, for those who've seen the, the documentary about Senna, that Prost might come across as the bad guy, uh, he actually brought the best out in Senna. And there's lots of times where you could argue that Prost was smarter than Senna in certain cases. So we didn't want to completely di- diminish or villainize uh, Prost in that way. So we would use physical reminders of that. And Raj touched on some of the totems that they used in the, obviously in the final with the photographs they brought um, uh, to uh, to Dublin uh, in, in that instance. So totems are just physical reminders of, of the theme. You're not necessarily delivering the story all of the time, but it's a reminder that the story and the idea is present. Don, Donica Ryan is someone who, has he leaned into it as well? Skin, as Raj would call him? <laughs> yeah, so I... I was actually there uh, when Donica's, it was his first week coaching and he is so hungry to learn. He's a great guy to kind of, um, to to kind of, to, to, to corny you and ask you again for feedback. He wants to learn so much. And it, it was great actually going out there then a couple of months ago and seeing again that difference in how he's come along. So he's very, very interested, I suppose, in, in what I'm doing. Um, he's still very new in coaching. Um, and I suppose he's learning as he goes, but he's just so eager to soak up so much. He he always says to me, he's like, oh, no, no, my French isn't good enough. And I'm sort of looking at him going, French is about 12 times, uh, 20 times better than mine. So, uh, but obviously he's he's doing it every day. But he's someone who's very, very interested, again, I suppose, in what myself and Roger are doing. He's a class act for sure. Um, that was brilliant. Really enjoyed getting under the skin of what it was all about, David. And we'll be keeping a close eye on your uh, progress, be it the Premiership or the Premier League. And uh, <laughs> we'll see. hopefully we'll catch up with you again down the line. Thanks a million for jumping on.
No worries. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks a lot, David Sharkey there, uh, who's the uh, man behind all the theming that you've been hearing about so much over the last while, and it was good to get a bit of an insight as to what it's all about. OTPAM with uh, Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now on Monday's show. Rashidat Adeleke is going to feature in the power rankings. Uh, Sarah Donovan will be here to pick through the weekend's hurling. We'll have a reaction as well to the Champions League final. Uh, Shane, good man. Enjoy uh, your weekend. I will. Cheers, Adrian. It'll be nice and quiet. <laughs> OTBAM's own uh, Cameron Hill. Uh, we're going to leave you with in conversation with David Goff. Have a great weekend. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now.